You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. First of all, we're going to be discussing the kingdom of God. Second of all, we're going to be discussing the nature of the soul. And thirdly, we're going to discuss the uh, judgment. However, before we get there, I'd like to first draw your attention to the importance of understanding. Do we really need to understand these biblical passages? Can we believe in Jesus and hope that it will all be okay? What are the ramifications if we don't understand these passages? Well, from our everyday reality, it's very important, and we, we know that it's very important, to understand what our neighbours, what our colleagues, what our friends and what our family are saying to us. Sometimes it can be really frustrating if we don't understand what someone's saying. Sometimes it can even be life-threatening. For example, if I were to say to you, and, and completely butcher this, I'm sure, you will sit here oblivious to the meaning of what I've just said. You don't understand. And yet if I was to translate from Swahili into English... Everyone evacuate the building immediately. There's serious ramifications to our everyday situations, or hopefully not everyday situations if we're evacuating buildings, but to, to everyday scenarios that, that, that make us aware that it's important to understand. Very clearly you would react differently to the second iteration of what I said than the first. So it's important that we understand what the people around us are saying to us. But does the same apply to what the Bible says to us? Well, if we believe that the Bible was written by God and we're going to assume that that is the case tonight, then very much so it matters. In fact, we're told by God in the Bible how important understanding his word is. In Psalm 49, we read, Be not thou afraid when one is made rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory shall not descend after him. Though while he lived, he blessed his soul, and men will praise thee, when thou doest well to thyself, he shall go to the generation of his fathers. They shall never see light. Man that is in honour and understandeth not is like the beasts that perish. So the Bible says that humans in this default position, without understanding, even in a position of honour in this world, aren't much different to an animal. We all die. The clear inference is that with an understanding, we can change that default position. So just like understanding an evacuation order is imperative to ongoing life, understanding the Bible and its message is also imperative to ongoing life. So rather than just explain what the meaning of this passage that we have tonight is from Luke 23, we're going to try to introduce some fundamental principles that hopefully will help you to understand in your own time, not just this section, but any section that you would like to understand from the Bible. And that way, hopefully, one, you'll be able to come to your own decision on the section that we consider tonight by going away and double-checking and finding further proofs. But also, two, be able to determine the meaning of any section of the Bible that you might find puzzling. So understanding passages. While there are important... Uh, there's many important factors to understanding difficult passages, and we could be here tonight running through a whole list of... of helpful hints and tips to understand difficult passages. 
But I've tried to boil it down into three steps to simplify things for tonight. And I, I apologise for the analogy. I couldn't think of another one. But a grain harvest, uh, which is, is often used in the Bible, uh, is what we've chosen tonight to, to show us and, I guess, to illustrate what the process of understanding the scripture needs to be. A grain farmer will first gather the grain from the field. Obviously, sorry. The grain, the grain farmer in his harvesting process will first gather the grain from the field, whether in days of law by hand or today by a combine harvester or, or something similar. Secondly, they will sift the grain from other parts of the plant to get rid of the husks, the stalks, and make sure that they're not selling rubbish to people to put into bread. Finally, the farmer will take the grain to be sold at a market or a wholesaler, and there the purchaser is likely to weigh the grain, determine its quality, and, and give a, and offer a price to the, to the farmer. To understand biblical passages, we need to follow a similar process. Firstly, we need to gather intel. And in the, first, and in the Bible's case, it's, it's such a large and such a consistent book that we can gather this intel largely from its own pages. We don't need to go to other sources to determine what it's telling us. To do this, we need to find as many passages as we can that are potentially relevant. We want to start off with a broad net. We want to gather everything, husks and all, stalks, everything, bugs, everything that could possibly be relevant, we want to gather it all into our, into our study. Sections that use the same words, that speak of similar ideas or concepts, we want to pull it all together. And two useful tools I've put up there to do this would be uh, the Strong's Concordance, uh, where we can search for words or similar words that are used elsewhere throughout the Bible, and also the Treasury of Scriptural Knowledge, which I've shortened to TSK. And that uh, is a, a helpful tool to search for verses that speak of similar concepts because people have gone through before, the authors of that book have gone through before and, and found verses that they find are similar. Secondly, we want to sift the intel for its relevance. And often an initial search, as I said, is going to bring up a lot of quotes, but a lot of them won't be relevant to the questions that you may have or, or the difficulty understanding you are experiencing. So as part of this sifting process, you may need to spend some time looking closely at each of the quotes to decide whether it's relevant to, de to determine what the overall, of, overall message of the section you're looking at is. And to do this, it's often very important to look at the context of each section to make sure we're getting the idea of the section right. And it can often be useful to look at different translations even to make sure that we're getting the right idea for each uh, each section. At this point, it's worth classifying and, and classifying the quotes that you've found into, in two ways. The first way is to classify quotes by what the understanding uh, it, it might appear to be supporting. So if you've got a quote that's... Um, so say, say we're looking at Luke chapter 20, um, 23. We want to understand what today thou shalt be with me in paradise is. We want to find quotes that um, mirror the section, mirror the the question that we have, things that are going to provide answers to us. And secondly, we want to find out and rate and classify how strongly it supports that understanding, because it might only slightly imply that understanding. It might not fully support that understanding. So if there's any ambiguity or if it can be interpreted in more than one way, then you might classify that lower than a section that is very clear and very, uh, very obvious what that, that section is telling us. And lastly, of course, we want to weigh up the relevant sections that we've now got, these classified sections that are, uh, are helpful to us and we've put them into a meaningful 
framework. We want to weigh them up against each other to determine if there's a general theme that emerges. Which argument is clear? Which argument is ambiguous? Which area is supported? At this point, we may need to look at any perceived contradictions that we see and see if we can reconcile those contradictions and find a way of matching up the Bible because we know that, because God has said that the Bible is consistent. So the process is to gather intel, to sift that intel, and weigh up the potential explanations. Let's then have a shot at applying that. And we're going to do that with Luke 23, the section we have to look at tonight. First of all, I'd like you to, uh, I'd like to quickly just discuss why we've chosen this section tonight and why we've called it a puzzling passage. Because you might think on first reading, that, and based on contemporary Christian thinking, that this isn't a puzzling passage at all. And you might think that it, it, it's clear what it means just from first reading. Well, we've applied the above process that we spoke about with this grain harvesting process. And we believe that the overall consensus of the Bible comes to a different conclusion than the consensus of the Christian community today. And hence why we believe this is a puzzling or a difficult passage. And hopefully after tonight you'll agree with us after we apply this process. So for the rest of our evening tonight, let's apply this process to Luke 23. And, and particularly from verse 32 to 49, and even more particularly, verses 42 to 43, where the exact phrase occurs. I've put it up on the screen. Let's read it. Luke 23, verse 42. The thief said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. So let's apply the first step. Let's gather intel on this section. What's the main question or issues at hand that are mentioned by this section? Well, firstly, of course, the verse is addressing the salvation of one of the thieves who was crucified beside Christ. Christ was willing at all points to listen to, to those who reach, reached out to him and to save those who confessed their sin. But that's not the issue that we're addressing tonight. There's a secondary issue. And that is the manner and the timing of salvation. So Christ came to offer salvation, but how is that salvation going to happen? And when is that salvation going to happen? If Christ said here today, then this would appear to support a salvation that occurred that very day, in which the thief would enjoy paradise together with Christ. To speak plainly, this quote is used to support the concept of an immortal soul that goes to heaven or hell upon death. Now, clearly, this section is not specifically referring to that doctrine. Christ isn't saying here that you have an immortal soul. Rather, any support of the issue either way, I, I guess, is incidental to the main message uh, that he's trying to portray. Now, that doesn't take away from that message, but it does mean that the meaning might be a bit more ambiguous than if Christ was directly speaking about the subject. For example, he doesn't say, tonight at 6 p.m., your immortal soul will join my immortal soul in eternal paradise in heaven. And that would remove any ambiguity, but he doesn't say that, and so sometimes we have to look into the exact meaning. And it's in these sorts of ambiguous areas that applying the Bible study pro process is particularly helpful. It can help us to clarify areas that, we're not, that, that are not entirely clear-cut. So the issue we're considering tonight is this secondary issue, that of the timing and the manner of salvation. So let's gather some intel on that subject from the remainder of the Bible. Let's have a look for words or concepts throughout the rest of the Bible. And I mentioned two great sources, so let's have a look at them now. And as we look, I want you to think we're going to 
what we're going to do, we're going to run through all the, the verses as part of the process. We're gathering all these sources. So we're going to run through all the quotes once. Then we're going to come back and sift them. So what I want you to do is start thinking ahead as we go through the gathering process to how you might start to classify, how you might start to, to quantify what these verses are telling us in relation to this subject. The first run through. Because the first run through is going to run through what the quotes are that come, come up in our search. So as we first have a look we're going to look at gathering intel using the treasury of scriptural knowledge. First of all, the treasury of scriptural knowledge classifies things by different phrases in the Bible. So you see this first one classifies it by when thou comest. So this is um, quotes that's, that are suggested to link to those. And these quotes speak of a belief in Christ where confession is essential to salvation. The ne ne next phrase in this section that uh, TSK comes up with is thy kingdom. And there's a couple of quotes here. Uh, Luke 24, ought not Christ to have suffered these things to enter into his glory? And then also Isaiah, I, I will divide Christ a portion with the great. And then First Peter 1, searching what, or what manner of time the spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Remember to have a think about how these apply or whether they apply to our situation tonight. We have also Psalm 2. I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. And Isaiah 9 speaks about the, 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 the kingdom of Christ and the increase of his government, government and peace having no end upon the throne of David. We read also from Daniel chapter 7 that Christ will be given dominion, glory and a kingdom and that all peoples, nations and languages will serve him starting to get a little bit more relevant, perhaps, without preempting our, our second half. The next phrase that is mentioned is today. Now, this, um, as you can imagine, and as you can see from the summary down the bottom, pulls up a, a lot of quotes. Um, I've pulled together, all, all of the quotes below are roughly in line with uh, Luke 15, verse 4 to 5 which says that what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, does not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it. Speaking of the, the willingness of Christ to save those who seek him. And some um, slightly different quotes that relate to today. We have from Job, chapter 33. He, that is God, looketh upon men, and if any say I have sinned and perverted that which was right and it profiteth, profited me not, he will deliver his soul from going into the pit, and his life shall see the light. Lo, all these things worketh God oftentimes with man, to bring back his soul from the pit, to be enlightened with the light of the living. Interesting quote there. And Romans 5 as well. Moreover, the law entered that the offence might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through Christ. Getting there, we only have two more sections to go. So the, the third, the, the, the second to last section that Treasury of Scriptural Knowledge brings up is the word with, um, and that might sound like a, a, a daft classification, but it does bring up some useful um, quotes with the overall concept. It doesn't just look for the word with in the Bible and tell you all the quotes that relate to with. So we have there uh, John 17, uh, 2 Corinthians 5 and Philippians 1, and also John 14. Um, I will read these because they, they will become relevant later. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. 
and that this next two are fairly similar, so I'll read just the, the Corinthians. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. And then John 14, if I go and pre- prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. How do you think we would classify those? And also, then finally, the words in paradise. In Second of Corinthians chapter 12, we read how that a man that Paul knew, the Apostle Paul knew, was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words which is not lawful for a man to utter. And then also in Revelation 2, these are actually the only two occurrences of, of the words paradise in, in the Bible. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the, the churches, or, or the, in the original Greek, ecclesias. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So that's gathering U.S. using the treasury of scriptural knowledge. Now, Strong's, on the other hand, pulls through a lot more quotes. And we're going to run through some of these tonight. But, um, so I've, I've put them up on the screen also. Again, have a think about how these are relevant. Thy kingdom come, Matthew 25, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory, he shall sit upon the throne of his glory. And blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching. 1 Corinthians 4, until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts. Revelation 1, behold, he comes with clouds. Every eye shall see him, they also which pierced him. Revelation 22, Christ says, I come quickly. And then there's a myriad of quotes that speak of the Lord coming, the bridegroom coming, the Son of Man coming, and the day of the Lord coming. We also have the word kingdom, which appears 154 times. Again, that Matthew 6 quote. And then Mark chapter 12, the kingdom of God is come unto you. John chapter 3, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And that quote there was actually referenced and was the subject of last week's um, talk. So go back and have a re-listen to that one if you uh, weren't here for that, situ- for that evening. And Acts 1, restore, wilt thou again, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel, ask the disciples of Christ, and he says, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons. Again, the kingdom, Second Timothy chapter 4, and this quote is uh, quite an interesting one and quite pivotal, I believe. The Lord Jesus Christ will appear who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. And Second Peter chapter 1 um, speaks about an everlasting kingdom, in Revelation 11, the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord. And again, there's a lot of quotes that just speak of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the Father, and the gospel of the kingdom. Now, I know this is a lot of quotes, but I guess I just wanted to put them all up there so that you can see that we're, we're genuinely applying this process. And then, of course, the occurrences of today, well, there's a, a lot of quotes that reference the word today. And then, as I said, there's only two occurrences of the word paradise. Uh, and the word itself, um, if we're trying to find perhaps some, some deeper meaning into it, means a park, and literally means uh, it's a reference to the Garden of Eden in, in the Old Testament. So that's gathering. So we've applied our process, we've compiled our list, we've gathered some intel, now we move on to the next step and we sift it. Is this relevant? Is it not? Is it grain? Is it a husk? So, of the references that came up in our, our search, 
what, which ones are relevant, which ones are ambiguous, and which ones are irrelevant. And I'm going to ask for some of these for you to for your opinions on this. Um, for those listening in, I will repeat them so that you you can hear those. First of all, these three quotes that are up on the screen now. Um, Luke, say for example, Luke 12 verse 8, I say unto you, whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of Man also confess before the angels of God. Is this ambiguous? Is this irrelevant? Or is this very relevant and potent to the subject tonight? Irrelevant. That quote there, while extremely relevant to some other subject, is not relevant to our subject tonight. The same can be said for all three of them, so we'll scratch them off the list. As you can see, this is going to be much faster than the first, the gathering process. What about this this second half of the Thy Kingdom um, quotes? Um, Say, for example, um, let's have a look. Which one? What about 1 Peter 1, verse 11? What, what do you think that one is? Is that ambiguous, irrelevant, or potent? You may think that because it mentions there the manner of the time, sort of sounds relevant, but I've classified this as irrelevant because it's not talking about the kingdom of God or the immortality of the soul. Again, all three of these are irrelevant. You can scratch them off our list. What about these quotes? Um, say, for example, Daniel chapter 7. It was given him dominion, glory, a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. Sorry, yes? Yep, so... so I'll repeat that. Some, uh, so that was uh, relevant because it defines the matter of the timing. And I, I've agreed. I've classified that as somewhat ambiguous, um, but leaning towards a kingdom on earth uh, because it speaks about the, all the nations being gathered to Christ. And I'll put them all up. I won't ask you for each quote. But the first and the third quotes there I've, I've said are ambiguous, but leaning towards the kingdom on earth. And then the middle quote there I've said is extremely relevant because it references uh, the, the increase of Christ's government and peace having no end upon the throne of David. So that indicates, with a reference to an Old Testament king, uh, a level of uh, immediacy and, and of a place. The throne of David was a place that we could go and visit today. That would indicate to me a kingdom on earth. And then we have also here so this is moving on to the quotes on, on today. We have Luke chapter 15, verse 4 to 5, which, again, I'm going to say is irrelevant. We have here also then Job and Romans. And I'm going to ask for somebody to perhaps give me an idea of if it's relevant on Job. If, if Job is relevant, what is it relevant for? What doctrine does it specifically address? The soul? Absolutely. So Job speaks here, or the, the, is written in the book of Job. Job's not the actual person speaking here. But it speaks here of a deliverance from God, of, of the soul from going 
into the pit. So this is directly relevant to our subject tonight, and I would say that this indicates that there is no immortal soul. Because if you're going into the pit and being brought back up of the pit, then uh, that process would, um, I guess, preclude the situation where you are, your soul is immediately going to heaven or to hell. It's going to both in this situation, if, if you follow the, the logic of an immortal soul. Again, here we have four quotes. Um, how about, I'm, I'm going to say that the first one there is irrelevant because uh, it doesn't really address the subject we're talking about tonight. But the last three can be difficult ones. Uh, if I was to ask you uh, wh which way you would think John 14 verse 3 on the surface is, is leaning or, or whether it's relevant and whether it's leaning towards a specific direction, what would you say? It's a bit of a trick question, but sorry, yes. Mm -hmm. So that was uh, irrelevant because we will be joined, so relevant because it will be joined with Christ when he comes again at his second coming. Now, I've actually classified this as ambiguous because it goes both directions. It speaks of Christ going to prepare a place, which has been interpreted to mean that Christ is going to heaven to prepare a place in heaven for us, but it also speaks of him coming again and receiving people at that time. So I'm going to say that that points both ways, and I'm going to classify those three quotes as ambiguous, but leaning towards a kingdom in heaven. And then we have some, some final quotes from the TSK, being the quotes about um, being in paradise. Um, and these two are both either irrelevant or ambiguous, um, in the sense that they don't really give us an indication apart from the fact that they um, reference back to the, the Garden of Eden and the Tree of Life and the, and the Paradise of God and um, things like that, which were a physical place. But there are arguments both ways as to whether that means kingdom in heaven or kingdom on earth. So I'm going to put that as either irrelevant or ambiguous, not, not necessarily helpful for our, our discussion tonight. So then we come to the, the quotes from Strong's. I'm going to classify these a little bit quicker. So, first of all, thy kingdom come, thy will on earth as in heaven. That indicates a kingdom on earth to me, because Christ is coming. Oh, sorry, God is coming. God's kingdom is coming. Matthew 25, when the Son of Man will come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. So, Christ comes, sits on a throne. That sort of indicates a kingdom on, on earth. And then Luke 12, blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching again indicating a kingdom on earth because he then sits down with them and has a meal. Speaking of the kingdom of, of, of God. We then also have, and I apologise, sort of, uh, the formatting has glitched a little bit there, but we have there 1 Corinthians 4, uh, Revelation 1 and Revelation 22. Now, these quotes are quite interesting Particularly if you have a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we read that until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts, and then shall every man have praise of God. So what is it saying? Well, it says, obviously, the Lord's going to come. So that indicates that he's coming to earth at some point. 
And at that time, he's going to bring to light the hidden things of darkness. Now you, mentioned, uh, you remember I mentioned there's three doctrines that we're going to be addressing tonight. The first one is whether the kingdom's on earth or in heaven. So that would, the Lord coming would indicate perhaps that it's a kingdom on earth. Second of all was the immortality of the soul, and that doesn't really address that section. But on judgment, which was our third issue, this section speaks about a single judgment period for everyone. It doesn't speak about people going to heaven upon death, being judged worthy of the, of the heaven or of heaven or going to hell instead it speaks about a single judgment period when Christ comes back to earth he judges everybody blanket and then shall every man have praise of God so it's a single time frame for that judgment so that and that along with an indication of a kingdom on earth and again that pretty much the same thing with Revelation chapter 1 so a single judgment period with the kingdom on earth and Revelation chapter 1 also also speaks about the resurrection now Revelation 1, again, is very interesting because the single judgment period is described as that every eye shall see him, they also which pierced him. So this is a situation where, okay, so you might say, well, when Christ returns, it's only going to be the people that are on earth that see him. Well, no, the people who see him will be also the people who pierced him. Those people have been dead for 2,000 years. Moving on. And we have just two more sections to go through in our classification. So we have here Matthew 6, verse 10, which we've already dealt with. We have um, Mark chapter 12. We have John chapter 3. Now, again, I, I believe that all of these uh, up to that point are fairly ambiguous. They don't really give us an indication um, either way. The kingdom of the Mark 12 saying that the kingdom of God is come unto you is an interesting one. Um, but... We can talk about that another time. It's, it's not really referring, I guess, directly to the issue at hand today. Acts chapter 1, and that was, again, the kingdom of Israel. So there's a linkage back there to the kingdom of Israel that was on earth. So I've classified these, again, that those, those two middle ones as ambiguous, uh, and this, the first and the last there as indicating a kingdom on earth uh, with a single time frame. And finally, we have these three quotes here, 2 Timothy 4. Now, I said to, to, to note 2 Timothy 4, because it's, again, one of those quotes that, that provides us some extra information on a couple of the fronts. So, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. So, there's a couple that's pretty concise there, but what is that telling us? Well, it's telling us that Christ is going to judge the living, the quick, quick means living, the living and the dead at his appearing. So there's a time when Christ will appear, and at that time, he's going to judge those who are living and dead, indicating that there's, again, a single judgment period, indicating that those people haven't been judged previously, so the dead people, if they had an immortal soul, either in limbo or erroneously in hell or heaven, depending on how you want to, to view that, or I guess just hoping that they were going to stay there forever sort of thing, and maybe when this appearing comes, they'll change classification and be moved from heaven to hell or something like that. And thirdly, it speaks about his kingdom in conjunction with his appearing, indicating again that that appearing, that that kingdom would be on earth. So again, I've classified second of Peter 1 as fairly ambiguous, not really helpful for our subject tonight, but the other two 
indicate to us a single, single judgment period for the living and the dead and that the kingdom will be on earth. And then, as I said, um, these quotes here are we're not going to look at tonight because there's too many or too few of them to provide much meaning. So there we have it. We've gathered, we've sifted. What was the next process? Next process was weighing. How much money are we going to get from this harvest? Is it useful to us? So the final step is to weigh up the remaining grain for market. And we've, we've gathered additional data using the Bible to interpret itself. We've sifted that data. We've gathered for re- relevance. And we've determined, on a very surface level, I'd admit, its quality in the current context. But let's weigh up that information that we have. Where do these quotes all lead us? First of all, are there any definitive negative statements that entirely preclude the other, uh, the other, other doctrine? Well, I'm going to say no for the purposes of tonight. We, we could argue about that. We've seen none of these quotes specifically exclude the other. They might speak about one thing happening, but... Um, Sometimes, uh, I mean, there's, there's always explanations for both ways. They might imply not one way, but they, might not spe- but they mostly don't specifically refute it. Let's have a look then at the quotes that are on the side of a kingdom on earth and a single, single judgment period. I know that as you've gone through, you've probably got an indication of where this is all going to sit, but um, this is the side for, or for a kingdom on earth with no immortal soul and an immortal uh, and a single judgment period. We had Job 33, Isaiah 9, Matthew 6, Matthew 25, Luke 12, Acts 1, 1 Corinthians 4, 2 Timothy 4, Revelation 1, Revelation 11, and also Revelation 22. All those generally on the side of a kingdom on earth with a single judgment period for, for all. So that's our case against the status quo of, of um, Christian belief. Let's have a look now at the quotes that appear to suggest a kingdom of God in heaven. And these quotes here, keep in mind, we classify it as um, fairly, a little bit ambiguous. So these are the sort of the ones that are in the, in the middle between, yes, kingdom of God in heaven, yes, kingdom of God in earth. So we have these four quotes that we, we sifted from amongst that. Now these appear on the surface to contradict those other quotes that we, we spoke of. Now, so we're going to run through each of these um, in a little bit more detail. First of all, the kingdom of heaven, mentioned there in Matthew chapter 24, 25. Sorry, This might lean toward a kingdom, of he- kingdom in heaven on face value, even though it doesn't explicitly state that. But upon closer inspection, this phrase very quickly joins the completely ambiguous pile and even sometimes, and even in some ways, throws some support against a kingdom in heaven. If you come across with me to Matthew chapter 25, we're going to have a look at this one. Just this is where we sort of have to start looking at the context of some quotes, just to make sure that our face value understanding of them is correct. Okay, Matthew chapter 25, from verse 14: The kingdom of heaven is as a man travelling into a far country who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. Unto one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to every man according to his several ability, and straightway took his journey. They go, uh, it's pretty clear here, that this is talking of, uh, it's a parable of Christ, describing himself into, uh, travelling into a far country, and it's pretty clear this is talking of him going to heaven after his resurrection, 
uh, as many of the New Testament writers uh, uh, witness to. So these servants that he's given these talents to, they go, they do their thing, they either sit on the money or they bring profit for their Lord. And if we come down to verse 19, we're told of uh, a judgment process, really. Matthew 25, 19. After a long time, the Lord of those servants comes and reckons with them. So A, Christ returns to the place he left from, where he left his, his, uh, his servants. And B, Christ judges all of those servants simultaneously. Let's read on, Matthew 25, verse 20. So he that had received five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, thou deliverest me five talents, I hide them five more. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee rule over many. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. But, you might say, this is just a parable. Not every aspect of this was meant to be taken literally. Well, have a look a few verses down. Christ very specifically describes the process in verses 31 to 34. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. And before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And essentially, Christ sets those who are for him, those who are against him, on either side, and, and passes judgment on them at this time. Now notice there this very specific wording. The Son of Man shall come in his glory in a specific time. All the angels will be with him. He's going to sit upon a throne at the time of his coming. And he's going to judge the nations. Now all of those point to a single judgment period in a kingdom on earth without an immortal soul. So that at the very least makes these quotes that refer to a kingdom of heaven. Now there's a lot of quotes that refer to the kingdom of heaven. Christ told a lot of parables about the kingdom of heaven. Um, that, this at the very least on a surface level and with a bit of a look at the context, makes it appear that the kingdom of heaven is not necessarily talking about a kingdom in heaven. And so it moves this quote into a supporting the kingdom of earth, on earth or ambiguous. Now, I was going to have a look at John chapter 14, but perhaps if you can come up afterwards we can talk about that, uh, because we are running out of a little bit of time. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, and Philippians 1, again, we won't spend a great deal of time on this, but we will just mention some of the context of these verses. Straight away, if we look at the context, we can see that Paul makes comments around this, these verses that sort of clarify what he's talking about and make them, in, from our perspective, more ambiguous as to the subject that we're addressing tonight. So, for example, and I'll just read these out, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. You can look at this up afterwards if you'd like. So, a couple of verses down from, from this quote up on the screen. Um, Paul says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things in body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. And that phrase, in body, would indicate that the person receiving those things has a body, which an immortal soul does not. And again, Philippians 3, later in the book, um, Paul talks about attaining unto the resurrection of the dead, which would appear to contradict the, the statement that he makes in Philippians chapter 1 about having a desire to, to, to depart and to be with Christ on a surface level if we are looking at it from the perspective of an immortal soul. So I understand, I understand those are the ones we probably, you probably have questions about, but I, we can talk about those after if you'd like. So that leaves us then with most of these quotes leaning towards 
a return of Christ to the earth, as we saw in Matthew 25, the Son of Man shall come in his glory, followed by a single judgment period for those who are living and for those who are dead at that point of his coming. 2 Timothy 4 verse 1, he shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. We learn also that it was, that it, that stage involves resurrection. It involves salvation from the grave for believers, as we saw in Job. We saw also that a kingdom on earth will be linked with Israel through David's throne. And we saw in Isaiah 9 verse 6 to 7 that, uh, there will, that his government will be upon the throne of David and that there will be no end to it. So that's, I guess, from the quotes that we've just broadly pulled in from those two sources, Strong's and the, the Treasury of Scriptural Knowledge, what the majority say. This initial search hasn't pulled up very much support for a kingdom in heaven, hasn't brought up much support for a, an immortal soul at all. And any potential support, um, hopefully, in that very brief look, you've been able to see are, are at best ambiguous or even contradictory to those doctrines. So that concludes our harvest. We've reaped, we've gathered, we've sifted for relevance, we've drawn a conclusion from these quotes. Now, I don't want you to get the impression that we've gone over every biblical section that relates to this. There's a lot tonight. Uh, there's a lot in the Bible that speak about this. And I guess tonight is about a starting point, so you can then take this and, and add to that knowledge, so that overall you can add more sections as you become aware of them, and I guess apply that same weighing up process at the end there. It's worth noting here that what we're doing tonight is very brief, and I'd encourage you to spend some of your own time looking at it. Note particularly, I just particularly wanted to note this, that the approach we've taken, and there are, others, there are other ways that we could have done this and other, um, I guess, sources other than Strong's and the Treasure of Scriptural Knowledge, which will help us do this. The approach we've taken is less likely to bring up Old Testament quotes because we, I've, I've looked for the, the Greek words that relate to in Strong's these sections, and obviously the Old Testament's written in Hebrew, so it won't pull up any of those quotes. Um, but... There's, there's some additional resources we can discuss after if you'd like to um, also delve into the Old Testament, which is very consistent. What I'm saying is that a separate search of the Old Testament is something we could recommend to understand more fully God's plans because he does speak extensively about this. So where does that leave us with Luke? If you come across back to Luke, Luke chapter 23, we've seen what the rest of the Bible tells us or appears to be telling us, what of Luke 23? Well, there's a couple of points that I quickly want to run through in the time that's left for us. The actual section in front of us in, is in us in light of some of the ideas that are put forward in relation to it is, it's proposed, as I said, that this quote indicates the existence of an immortal soul, which for faithful believers goes to heaven upon death. This interpretation leans upon this quote from Christ to say, how else could he and the thief have been that very day in paradise together, only by an immortal soul, surely, because this would indicate an immediacy of the reward of the paradise. Can Luke 23 be indicating these things? Well, I find this explanation quite unsatisfactory. We know for certain that Christ was certainly not in heaven that day, the day after, or the day after that. Have a look at Matthew chapter 12, Matthew 16, and John chapter 20. Christ, foreseeing his death, said, As Jonah was three days and nights in the whale's belly, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Matthew 16. Jesus began to show to his disciples how he must go to Jerusalem and be killed and be raised again the third day. And John 20. I guess the clincher. Jesus said after his resurrection, at least three days later, 
touch me not, I am not yet ascended to my father. He hadn't been to paradise three days later. So how could he have been in paradise with the thief that day? Therefore, the straightforward immortal soul theory on the, on the, on the surface cannot be what this quote is referring to. Christ himself was not in heaven the next day. So this quote cannot be referring to Christ being in heaven with the thief that day. So let's explore whether there's an alternate explanation that ensures the Bible remains consistent throughout. Now there's a, there's a few potential explanations for what this quote means. We're going to look at two of them tonight. The first of those is that there's a slight grammatical mistranslation in the English Bible translated from the Greek that we have before us. And, and this revolves around the fact that in Greek, I believe there are no punctuation marks in the original Greek. So, well, so what? Who cares? Well, have a look at the punctuation mark that occurs in that verse. It's a number, but specifically the one that's before today. That changes the meaning significantly if we move that punctuation mark. Well, let's have a look at some everyday phrases that might indicate that this is important. I like cooking my family and my pets. Let's eat grandpa. And commas are important people. All of these indicate and show us the importance of grammar to our English language. Each of these phrases, each of these phrases, we're left to guess where the punctuation belongs, if there's any punctuation at all, and they have vastly different meanings to potentially what they might mean otherwise. If we were to change them to "I like cooking," "my family," and "my pets," or "let's eat," "grandpa," or "commas are important people." It's similar in this case. If we take this sentence without punctuation, we would get the following. Verily I say unto thee today that thou be with me in paradise. If the punctuation was perhaps one word back, we might have verily I say unto thee today, thou shalt be with me in paradise. Very different. Christ saying to him today, not saying you will be with me today in paradise. Now you might say, what license do we have to move that comma around? Firstly, I'd like to point to the context of what Christ is responding to, because in verse 42, the thief says, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. The thief is asking one thing of the Lord, that he would be remembered at some future point in Christ's kingdom. How best to reassure someone that they will be remembered than to confirm today, here and now, there and then, that he will be remembered, that he is remembered. But this may still not satisfy you. Even without moving the punctuation around, though, this quote can make sense in line with what the rest of the Bible has told us tonight. There's another principle around death in the Bible that we've briefly touched on, and it's portrayed by the wisest man that lived before Christ, Solomon. And he said in Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 9 verse 5, The living know that they shall die, but the dead know not anything. Neither have they more, any more a reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. In the thief's experience, who Christ was speaking to, once he was dead, he knew nothing. Therefore, to him, to be in paradise would still come the next conscious moment of his death, from his death. The thousands of years that have since passed, he has had no consciousness. He knows nothing. Resurrection and paradise will come for him in the next moment after he died. And this same concept is found in a number of other biblical places, like uh, here in Acts. Acts 7, verse, six, verse 60, sorry. 
The Jews of the day were stoning Stephen, and he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He didn't fall asleep. He died. Because, but, but in Stephen's experience, he fell asleep. His next waking moment was to come at his resurrection in the kingdom of God on earth, and yet he very clearly died, because we see the very next verse, Acts chapter 8, verse 1, Saul was consenting to his death. So here again, we have a potential conflict of words, potential conflict of meanings. Was he asleep or was he dead? The difference lies in the experience of the people they were speaking of. In the thief and in Stephen's experience, their next conscious moment would bring them to paradise with Christ. And from Saul's perspective and from our perspective looking in, from the world's perspective for the last 2,000 years, they died, they've remained dead for the last 2,000 years. Just some thoughts to ponder. I'd like to conclude, though, with one further passage. And that is across in 1 Corinthians, if you'll come with me. This is a fundamental chapter in this regard. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we're going to start reading from verse 12, because this summarizes everything we've talked about tonight really well. If Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there's no resurrection of the dead? If there be no resurrection of the dead, then Christ isn't risen. And if Christ be not risen, our preaching is vain, your faith is also vain. Yea, we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. It's a bit of a circular argument, basically saying, the hope of the Bible hinges on the resurrection of Christ. Verse 18, they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. They also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. See here again, Paul uses the same terminology that we've just been talking about. He says, the dead have fallen asleep. But note, he doesn't say that their consciousness is now out there somewhere in the universe. He says, if Christ wasn't resurrected, then these people are perished. He goes on to say that without the hope of resurrection, we're miserable. We have no hope at all. Which would not be the case if we had an immortal soul. We wouldn't be miserable because we would look forward to the time in paradise with God in heaven. Read on, verse 19. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable, as I said. Now is Christ risen from the dead. He's become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Note the tense. They shall all be made alive. Implying they are not currently. He reinforces this point in the next verse, in verse 23. And he says, every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward, they that are Christ's, every day when they die. No, he doesn't say that. He says, at his coming. Afterward, they that are Christ's, at his coming. And verse 24, then comes the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule, all authority and power. So Christ will reign in the kingdom of God when he comes to earth again, noting that at the beginning of this kingdom, death will still be prevalent, along with others in the world who have authority and power. This is the kingdom of God on earth. It's going to be a process of converting the world to God's rule. And it doesn't make a lot of sense if this is speaking about a kingdom in heaven, because what rule? 
What authority, what power needs to be put under his feet if all immortal souls in heaven are his saints? And his kingdom is reign and he is reigning as king there. And just skip down a couple of verses, verse 26 we see there, or verse 25 and 6. He must reign till he hath put all enemies to, under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. There is no immortal soul. The kingdom of God is on earth, not in heaven. We all die. We have no consciousness at that point. But through Christ, we do have, as we see here, a hope of resurrection to life again. I hope now that it's clear that this is the Bible's picture of God's plan for the world. So what have we seen? The fundamental doctrines around this passage are not what they appear. Even just simply following the time frame given by our Lord Jesus Christ, the common understanding of this phrase and this, this statement that he makes cannot be the case. And we've gone through how you personally can start to criti critically evaluate the difficult passages that you might find yourself questioning and how best to find the Bible's answers and God's answers on any subject that is addressed directly in the Bible. So what next? Sorry, I meant to put that up. <laughs> Understanding difficult passages use the grain harvesting process. Gather your data. Sift that data and weigh it up and make conclusions. As we've shown tonight, hopefully we've shown tonight, it's quite straightforward. And we can continue to plug in more and more information into that, um, into that process. It's a continuous process of learning and building on prior knowledge. And we hope that you'll be able to apply this in your own personal Bible study. And of course, if this is one that you're thinking about as well, you can come back next week and listen to a difficult passage from the, the book of Thessalonians around the man of sin. is I and my father are one, um, and it's part of an overall group of studies that we're doing um, under the general topic of understanding puzzling passages. So I'm going to split tonight into three sections. Those sections are what this doesn't mean, what this does mean, and what this means for us. These sections are in order of ascending importance, meaning we'll start off with very important crucial information and then gradually work our way onto even more important and more crucial information as we go. I, I won't be as strict and rigid with these sections as I have been for other topics I've done before, um, as I'll be using a lot of the same content for each section, and we'll be going to the same quotes a couple of times, as some of them are relevant to each loose section. So what I'll be doing tonight is refuting false teaching, um, specifically that Jesus and God are one and the same person, uh, just different aspects. I'll, I'll then explain the truth, that Jesus and God are separate people, but united, and then I'll explain why it's important to us personally and why we should be aware of that information. So to establish the premise of our topic, I'll start by saying that the Bible is one of the most controversial and widely discussed books ever written. There are reportedly over 40,000 Christian denominations, each with their own interpretation of a variety of verses and topics that differ from others. Beliefs and commonly held doctrines have changed and morphed over the years, cultures and changing demographics, putting emphasis on different aspects at different times. None of that is to say that the Bible itself has changed, although it was written over a few millennia, 
but more that it's often very hard to distinguish what is the truth from the changes in interpretations that have cropped up in the past 2,000 years. You might also wonder why we need to understand the puzzling passages of the Bible. So long as we have some sort of basic knowledge of God and his messages, then it'll, it'll be all right. Well, the Bible actually tells us that that's not the case. As it says in Proverbs 25 verse 2, it is the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honour of kings is to search out a matter. We are also given an example of this in action in Acts 17 verses 10 to 12, which reads, And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether these things were so. Therefore many of them believed, also of honourable women which were Greeks, and of men not a few. So Paul preached to the city... Um, preached to the people in a city called Berea, and they were commended for their approach to what he taught them, as they readily listened and then went and searched the scriptures themselves to determine whether or not what he was saying was true. So in pre preparation for tonight, I have searched out the matter, and I would encourage you to do the same um, in your own time as well, as I will only be scratching the surface on what can be said about our topic tonight. Before I begin properly on the actual topic, I thought I'd give a background history lesson on one of the changes in interpretation in particular, that being the doctrine of the Trinity, which we're discussing tonight. The last of the biblical writings, the book of Revelation, was written around AD 95. The Hebrew Bible, or the 39 books of the Old Testament, were already fairly established and are what Jesus refers to when he mentions the scriptures. Around the end of the first century, the majority of the letters and writings post-Jesus' birth, considered to be New Scripture or the New Testament, had been chosen, although Christian leaders had gatherings um, to discuss this further for quite some time, trying to vet any writings not considered acceptable. The criteria for what could be considered as a part of the Bible were as follows. It had to be written by one of Jesus' disciples, someone who was a witness to Jesus' ministry, such as Peter, or someone who had interviewed witnesses, such as Luke. It had to be written in the first century AD, meaning that books written long after the event of Jesus' life and the first decades of Christian growth weren't included. And it had to be consistent with other portions of the Bible known to be valid, meaning the book couldn't contradict a trusted element of scripture. Now, one of these gatherings was in a city called Nicaea in the year 325, called the First Council of Nicaea. The discussions and conclusions from that gathering became known as the Nicene Creed. It was later amended in 381 at the First Council of Constantinople. Wikipedia states that while it is still commonly referred to as the Nicene Creed, the amended version is referred to as the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed for disambiguation. I don't personally mind a bit of ambiguation if it means I don't have to um, attempt to say that again, so I'll stick with the Nicene Creed. But one of the main things that was decided on in this creed was the divinity of Christ, that he was a, of the same substance as God. The last section of the creed states, But those who say, There was a time when he was not, and he was not before he was made, and he was made out of nothing, or he is of another substance or essence, or the Son of God is created, or changeable or alterable, they are condemned by the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. The Constantinople Amendment included the Holy Spirit in this. Um, this was the beginnings of official belief in the so-called divine trinity. It's ironic then that in deciding this, they completely disregarded their own rules 
for deciding whether or not doctrinal writings were to be considered. The Trinity was not put forth by a disciple of Jesus, a first-hand witness or a contemporary interviewer. It wasn't a first-century AD teaching, having been adopted about 300 years after the death of Jesus. And as we'll see later in our talk, it isn't consistent with other portions of the Bible known to be valid. It clearly contradicts trusted elements of the scripture that they themselves helped to vet. So regardless of these inconsistencies, the doctrine has become widely accepted throughout Christian communities. It has adapted and morphed over the centuries, and now there are three main things that those who believe in the Trinity claim. They are that Jesus is co-equal, co-eternal, and co-substantial with God. Co-equal meaning Jesus and God are equal um, in power and importance. Co-eternal meaning that they are both eternal, have been forever, and will be forever. Co-substantial meaning that they are of the same substance, made up of the same spirit being. So what we're going to be stop stepping through throughout tonight is that Christ is not co-equal, co-eternal or co-substantial with God and that the Trinity is a false teaching. But what makes me say that? How can I so confidently say that the Trinity is false, even when putting aside the earlier consistent inconsistencies involved in adopting the belief in the first place? Well, to get into our first bit of proper Bible verse content and to touch on our topic, we had read for us tonight a very commonly misinterpreted and misread statement from Christ that is used to back up the Trinity. And the verse I will specifically focus on is John 10, verse 30, which says, I and my Father are one. Taken out of context, on its own, with no other verses to back it up, what would we think this means? Well, we know what the people um, he was speaking to thought, if we'll read on. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, and because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. The Jews wanted to stone Jesus for what he said. They claimed that he was making himself God, and obviously this was blasphemy. So out of context, and with no other verses to cross-check it, it would seem that Jesus is saying that he is God. The Jews at the time certainly seemed to think so. And later, in John 14, verses 8 and 9, he says, well, which say, Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Philip, one of the twelve disciples, asked Jesus to show him the Father, and Christ replied, that any who had seen him had already seen the Father. Like, you've seen the Father, Philip. I'm right here in front of you. So is this the teaching, yeah, is this the teaching of Trinity, then? Are Christ and God one and the same? Well, we can easily find out that that isn't how those words should be read. Come across with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So 1 Corinthians was written by the Apostle Paul and he was trying to stop the believers in Corinth from splitting into divisive factions. We'll start from verse 3 for some context. This reads, For ye are yet carnal, for whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are ye not carnal? 
Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers by whom ye believed, even as the Lord gave to every man? I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labour. So there's that concept again, the fact that they are one. And it's the same Greek word for one here as it is back in John. So he that planteth, Paul, and he that watereth, Apollos, are they their own trinity or duinity? Well, no, it's pretty clear that they aren't. Like I said earlier, Paul was trying to stop the Corinthians from being in their own little factions. Those who are of Paul, those who are of Apollos, when they should have been unified in their faith and love of Christ. Paul and Apollos, though separate and individual people, were completely unified, indistinguishable and one in their end goal and purpose. For example, if you had a punching bag and you wanted to do the natural thing and punch it, you would curl your fingers into a fist and punch the bag. You wouldn't say your individual fingers were actually the same finger, but that they were united in their purpose of punching the bag. Similarly, we can see that when Christ said, I and my Father are one, he's not claiming to be God, he's stating that he is unified in purpose with him. And that also explains the John 14 verses where Christ tells Philip that if you've seen him, you've seen the Father. My Father is Anthony. And while I'm not as unified with my father as Christ is with God, you can still see my father in me. You can see his parenting, his views, attitudes, ideas, quirks and way of life all in me. And while you can't see my father perfectly through me, you could perfectly see God through Christ in his actions, his words and his life as he perfectly emulated him. Christ prays later in John 17 verses 20 to 23, neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me, and the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved me as thou and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. So even more proof that Christ is not saying that he is the same exact person as God. We too can be one with God and with Jesus through our motivations and our purpose. Now, hopefully you all remember the definitions I gave of co-equal, co-eternal and co-substantial because I'd like to spend some time on each section now going through um, each of them and showing how they don't apply to the relationship between Jesus and God. So first of all, was Jesus co-equal with God? If you're still in John 14, we'll read from verse 22. Judas saith unto him, not Iscariot, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings, and the word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. So he was sent by the Father, but we'll keep reading. Um, These things have I spoken unto you, 
being yet present with you. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, or Spirit, um, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Ye have heard how I said unto you, I go away and, came, and come again unto you. If ye loved me, ye would rejoice, because I said, I go unto the Father, for my Father is greater than I. There we go. In plain, simple words, Jesus' Father, God, is greater than him. So the claim that Jesus and God are co-equal is false, and we're told that by Christ himself. And that's not just a once-off isolated comment either. Throughout his ministry, Christ makes many references to his Father being greater than him. He says in John 5, verse 19, Verily, verily, I say unto you, So we'll read from 1 Corinthians 15 and verses 24 to 28. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death, for he hath put all things under his feet. Um, I think I've written that wrong. But, then, but when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued under him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. At the end, when Christ delivers the kingdom to God, he won't then take a place with God in co-equality. Verse 28 says that Jesus will be subject to him that put all things under him. That's God. So is Jesus co-equal with God? No, he's not. Okay then, is Jesus co-eternal with God? Well, John and chapter 5 gives the answer to that question given to us by Jesus himself again. Looking at verse 26, which reads... For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. So God has life in himself, but Jesus needed to be given that life from God. That's a pretty clear lack of co-eternity right there. And the Old Testament backs this up in Psalm 2, verses 6 and 7, which say, Yet have I set my king upon my hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Notice the tense here. I will declare the decree. It's speaking in the future tense of a son of God. And it says he will say to the son, this day have I begotten thee. I've never been present at a childbirth, unless you count my own. Um, but that's the sort of thing you'd say to a newborn. A sort of welcome, welcome to the world. Welcome to being in the world as your own person. 2 Samuel 7, verses 8 to 14, say very, very similar things in the promise to King David, if you'll if you come there. So we'll read 2 Samuel, verses 8 to 14. Now therefore, so shalt thou say unto my servant David, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheepcote, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. 
And I was with thee whithersoever thou wentest, and have cut off all thine enemies out of thy sight, and have made thee a great name, like unto the name of the great men that are in the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own, and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies, also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee an house. And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men, and with the stripes of the children of men. So the whole of that promise is in future tense. It's speaking of a child not yet born, a person who is not yet the son of God because he is not yet in existence. You can't promise you will, you will do something that you'll give someone a seed for that seed to already be there and have been there forever. It has to be a future descendant. So is Jesus co-eternal with God? No, he is not. Now, you're probably all very aware of what the next question is, but I'll ask it anyway, just in case you've forgotten. Is Jesus co-substantial with God? Well, first of John 4, verses 1 to 3 say, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come. And even now already is it in the world. Now, the word spirit here, um, it means a current of air, a breath or a breeze. It has the implication of a mental disposition towards something. John is saying, don't believe every idea you hear. Don't just trust every viewpoint. You have to try them, or as it means, test. You have to test those ideas. And like we mentioned at the start of tonight, this was the spirit of the Bereans. Um, they checked the facts and made sure that what they were hearing was backed up. That's what we need to do too. As John says, there are many false prophets, even during his time in the first century AD. An interesting fact about the Greek for false prophets is it's one word, pseudo-prophetes, I don't think I got the uh, pronunciation right, meaning an untrue or deceitful prophet. So it's not just someone who's teaching wrong things, it's calculated and it's designed to be wrong. John goes on to say, you will know whether a spirit or concept is of God if they confessed that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, then they are of God. If they don't confess that, then not only are they not of God, but they are also directly opposing Christ. They are the spirit of antichrist. Christ came in flesh, definitely not of the same substance as God. But what are the actual differences because of that? I've, I have three differences here. There are plenty more, but I'll just focus on these. The first comes from Hebrews 2, verses 16 to 18, which tells us, For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behoved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, 
he is able to succor them that are tempted. So when he came, he was able to be tempted just like we are. But James 1 verse 13 says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. So the first difference is Christ can be tempted or he could be tempted, but God cannot be. Secondly, Revelation 1 verses 18 says, I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. So in essence, Jesus is alive, but he was dead. Now, 1 of Timothy, 1 of Timothy 3 verse 16 says about God, Who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen, nor can see, to whom be honour and power everlasting. Amen. That tells us that only God has immortality. We know he can give immortality, immortality to others, as the Revelation verse told us that Jesus is alive forevermore, but God is the source of that immortality alone. Thirdly, Acts 1 verses 10 to 11 states, And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, Behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. So that's saying, you've seen him here, you've seen him go, and you'll see him return as well. They see him at every point along the way. However, back in 1 Timothy 3 verse 16, God only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honour and power everlasting. Amen. So they saw Christ and will see him again, but no man has seen or can see God. So to sum up those three differences, Jesus can be tempted, or he could be in when he was first here before he left, God cannot. Jesus could and did die. God cannot die and is the only source of immortality. Jesus was seen and will be seen again and uh, no man has seen or can see God. All very big differences. So hopefully what I've managed to show you with that is that Jesus is not co-equal, co-eternal or co-substantial with God. Instead he is God's son, a human made as, of the same flesh as us. So now we know what the puzzling passage for tonight means. But why did we need to know all that? Was it simply, for knowledge, simply knowledge for knowledge's sake? Well, no, it's actually very relevant to us. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 15 again to see why. We went here earlier to show that Jesus was not co-equal with God. And the chapter goes on to speak about resurrection from the dead in verse 29. Else what shall they do which are baptised for the dead, if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptised for the dead? And then he continues this thread from verse 35. But some men will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? They are full, 
That which thou sowest is not quickened, except it die. And that which thou sowest, thou sowest not that body that shall be, but bear grain. It may chance of wheat or of some other grain, but God giveth it a body as it hath pleased him, and to every seed his own body. So there will be a resurrection from the dead. Our mortal flesh bodies are the grain in this analogy. And Paul is reminding the Corinthians that you don't plant wheat and then dig the wheat back up. You plant it in the hopes that it will grow into something more, something better. He then goes on to speak about the differences in glories between terrestrial and celestial bodies to show the difference between them. And then says from verse 42 that just like there is a terrestrial earth glory and a heavenly celestial glory, so also is the resurrection of the death. It is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and a spiritual body. And so it is written, The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Howbeit, that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthy, and the second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earth, such are they also that are earthy, and as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. So our first bodies are in corruption with a space between it. They're not in corruption, they are in corruption, which we, we all know. We get old, we lose our strength, and then die and physically corrupt in the grave. But when we are raised, we can have bodies that are incorruptible, with no space. And that's why this topic is important to us. Verse 49 says, And as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image <coughs> of the heavenly. If Christ had been part of a divine, heavenly trinity, co-equal, co-eternal, and co-substantial with God, then his resurrection from the dead would have meant nothing. He wouldn't have been dead in the first place if he had the same immortality as God. We wouldn't have a hope or an example of resurrection because we wouldn't have his example to follow. He bore the earthy and is now heavenly, and so too can we. Now, we aren't guaranteed resurrection and incorruptible spirit bodies. As Christ said in Mark 16, verse 16, He that believeth and is baptised shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be condemned. So the resurrection and changing of our bodies from corruptible flesh to incorruptible spirit has prerequisites of belief and baptism. But we can talk more about them, what that means, on another night, as they are their own very important topic. I'd like to finish with the rest of 1 Corinthians 15, but before I do that, I'll recap what we've learned tonight. We've seen that the common interpretation of the Bible has changed throughout the centuries, and that the belief that Jesus and God are different aspects of the one Trinity, along with the Holy Spirit, was only decided during the 4th century AD. When Jesus said that he and his Father were one, he was speaking about their purpose and goals, and that each one of us can be one with them as well. We've seen that Jesus was not co-equal, not co-eternal, and not co-substantial with God. He was not co-equal, 
telling us that his father is greater than him. He was not co-eternal, as he was prophesied to be of the seed of David and begotten of God. And he is not co-substantial, as we are told that he came in the flesh, could be tempted, he died, and he was and will be seen. He has been raised and given an incorruptible and immortal body, and we now know that we too can experience that if we believe and are baptised. So, to end tonight, I'll read 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 to 58. Now, this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labour is not in vain in the Lord. Thank you. The Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 15 tells us that the Bible is an important document from God. Paul writes, the Holy Scriptures are able to make all people wise unto salvation. There is a salvation, a hope, an answer to the problems we see in the world today. And that hope is clearly presented in the Bible. Paul adds in verse 16, the next verse, that all Scripture, both Old and New Testaments, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. In the Bible, we find instructions that if we follow, will bring us into a relationship with God and will become associated with the hope of eternal life in the kingdom of God on earth. That is the salvation that God offers eternal life in a changed and better world. In Daniel 2 verse 44 we read that the God of heaven will set up a kingdom on earth that will never be overthrown. That kingdom will replace all the human kingdoms and governments that are presently in control because God has determined to make Jesus Christ king of this kingdom. And that offer of God is to us. Found in Mark 16 verse 15 is that if we carefully study the Bible and understand its message correctly, if we respond to the call of the gospel, then not only will we be there, but we will be part of a community of people that will help Jesus Christ administer the laws that will make this world the paradise God intended it at the beginning. But we ask the question, 
If the Bible has this clear message, why don't all people accept it? Why do Christians believe that the hope of the Bible is in heaven? Why do the churches teach something that is opposite to what we have seen in those three passages? The answer is because they don't read the Bible properly. They don't study the Bible in the manner that the Bible needs to be studied. And because of that, their conclusions on what God is saying and teaching in the Bible is faulty. So tonight, we want to look at another example where church teaching on the Bible is wrong. We want to consider a reference that, unfortunately, has been interpreted incorrectly by the churches. And the reference is in the reading from John 3, verse 3 to 6, and the statement specifically that Josh mentioned, except a man be born again. And our lecture title, as we've mentioned, is Understanding Puzzling Passages. Unfortunately, many Christian religions are puzzled by the Lord's words here, and instead of going to the Bible itself to answer the puzzle, they resort to their own interpretation. Now, let me ask you to come with me to Luke 24, only a couple of pages back from where we are, so that I can show an example of how the Bible tells us to study it. In this passage, Jesus appears to two disciples after his resurrection. They were walking home and talking about the crucifixion of Jesus, and Jesus appears to them. They didn't recognise it was Jesus that met them, and their conversation with him, in their conversation with him, they confess that they were puzzled in their minds about a teaching of the Bible. And so we pick up the story in verse 19 to 21. And he said unto them, What things? And they said unto him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. They knew what the Bible taught about Messiah, how he would come and he would save them, from the dominion, sorry, from the domination of oppressing foreign nations. They said to this man, we thought that Messiah was Jesus, but he has been put to death. They were puzzled about the meaning of the scripture concerning Messiah. And Jesus' response to them is critical for us to notice in the context of our talk tonight. He told them that the reason they were puzzled and were going to end up with an incorrect interpretation of the Bible passage was because they weren't looking at the puzzle from the correct perspective. They were trying to put together what that one reference of the Bible said concerning Messiah coming to save, based on the events that had occurred, based on their own personal reasoning. And that was a mistake. Look at what Jesus does to help them see how to solve this puzzle. Verses 25 to 27. Then he said unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The reason they were puzzled was because they had failed to use an important tool to properly study the Bible and come to the correct conclusion. They were not interpreting the Bible properly because they were not using the Bible to interpret the Bible. They were not letting the Bible interpret itself. They did not put all the relevant references in the Bible together and see the true picture. They knew what Moses and the prophet said about Messiah, 
but they didn't use those reference to, references to answer the puzzle in their minds. And unfortunately, that is what the Christian religions fail to do as well. They do not put all the relevant scriptural evidence together and so arrive at the correct conclusion. They take references in the Bible out of context and then come up with their own conclusions. Notice what Jesus did with them in verse 27. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he quoted all the scriptures concerning himself so that in the end they saw the truth. Jesus had to be crucified. He had to suffer before the glory, before he could redeem Israel. And so Jesus answered the puzzle in their minds. He showed them that their faith in Jesus was well-founded. So let's come back to John chapter 3, and let's use the tool that Jesus used here in Luke 24. And let's compare Bible verses with Bible verses. Let's allow the Bible to interpret itself. Because that's the only way we'll come to the conclusion that God wants us to understand as truth. And we need to especially do that with this passage in John 3, because Jesus says this in verse 3. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. If we don't understand the true meaning of what Jesus means here when he says, except a man be born again, then we won't see the kingdom of God. And that was the danger facing this man, Nicodemus, that came to see Jesus. He wanted to know who Jesus was. He was, was he the son of God, as was rumoured? And if he was the son of God, would the kingdom of Israel be established now? Well, let's read again what Jesus said to him, because it puzzled Nicodemus. Beginning in verse 3, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Nicodemus was puzzled by the words of Jesus, and Jesus identifies why he was puzzled. In verse 9, Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? And Jesus answers and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Nicodemus was making the same mistake that the two disciples made that we saw in Luke 24. Like them, Nicodemus knew the scriptures. In fact, Nicodemus knew them better. He was a master, a teacher of the scriptures in Israel. He taught the scriptures to others. But he wasn't using the scriptures properly. He wasn't proving scripture by scripture. So let's take a closer look at what Jesus said and let's use the scripture to come to the correct interpretation of these important facts that will help us see the kingdom of God better. Now, if you're following the reading carefully, you would have noticed that in verses 3 to 8, the word born is repeated eight times. The word is in verse 3, born again. It's found twice in verse 4. How can a man be born and mother's womb and be born? It is in verse 5, born of water and spirit. It is found twice in verse 6, born of flesh and born of spirit. In verse 7, born again, and it is in verse 8, born of the Spirit. 
Now, when we examine the use of this word born in those six verses, it is obvious that the word is used in different ways. And even though the, in the Greek it is all the same word in eight, all eight occurrences, not all of the uses of the word refer to the same thing. The word is used in more than one way. The word is used in a literal way, and it is used in a figurative way. So first let's notice that the word born is found in this passage of verses regarding a literal birth. When Jesus in verse 3 said to Nicodemus, you must be born again, Nicodemus was confused. And the reason he was confused was because he thought Jesus was speaking about a literal birth when in fact Jesus was speaking figuratively. So he said to Jesus in verse 4, How can a man be born again, born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus thought Jesus was referring to a natural birth. A natural birth is the result of two stages, begetal and birth. A child is conceived in the womb and then nine months later it is born. Nicodemus is puzzled. What was Jesus saying? How can an old man, an adult, be born naturally? Impossible. And Nicodemus was right. But Jesus was not speaking about a natural birth. He was speaking about a figurative birth. Well, what is a figurative birth? A figurative birth is a birth that is a new beginning, a new direction in life, a renewal. It is not a literal birth, but it has the elements of a natural birth. It is a figurative birth. The born again that Jesus was speaking about involved a new beginning, a new birth. Jesus was not speaking literally, he was speaking of a figurative birth. We know that because the figurative birth that Jesus was referring to has a different outcome from a natural birth. A natural birth is a birth that begins with the birth of life, but it inevitably ends with death. Nicodemus in verse 4 knew that. He realised he was an old man. Death was closer now for him than when he had been born. The birth that Jesus was referring to would not end in death. In the end of verse 3, this birth would allow a person to see the kingdom of God. They would see the hope of the Bible and would have hope to experience eternity in this kingdom on earth, as we considered in those references we began with. So let's understand this, that the word born that Jesus uses is about a figurative birth, not a literal birth. The other thing that helps endorse that Jesus is speaking about a figurative birth is in verse 3, Jesus qualified what kind of birth he was talking about. Notice that Jesus said to Nicodemus, you need to be born again. That word again is not a fair interpretation of the original Greek word. If you have a King James version that has a margin, you'll notice that the translators have said the word again should really be from above. It is very important that we notice that correction because it not only helps us understand that Jesus is referring to a figurative birth, but also in helping us understand the meaning of what Jesus was saying. Jesus picked his words carefully when he spoke to people to teach them about the Bible. Often, his teachings had echoes back to Old Testament scriptures. Remember, that's what he did with the two on the road back in Luke 24. He turned up the scriptures to them and interpreted the scripture by the scripture. And in verse 3, Jesus is doing the exact same thing. 
In this case, Jesus had four Old Testament references in mind. Deuteronomy 4 verse 39, Deuteronomy 28 verse 13, Joshua 2 verse 11, and 1 Kings 8 verse 23. On the screen, I have the first reference of that list, but they all make the same point. But notice the, the use of the word above, um, at, and at the same time, the word beneath. In this place, we have recorded the prayer that King Solomon made when the temple of God in Jerusalem was finished building. And notice how Solomon starts his prayer. Know therefore this day, and consider it in thine heart, that the Lord, he is God in heaven above and upon the earth beneath. There is none else. Above refers to heaven, to God. He is God in heaven above. So when Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again or born from above, he was telling Nicodemus that he needed to be born from God. Was Jesus speaking literally? Because Jesus, remember, was born of God literally. No, Jesus is not speaking literally because the Bible tells us that Jesus is the only begotten of God. So why did Jesus say to Nicodemus he must be born from above? Which means from God. The answer is because Jesus, remember, was, being, was using the word born in a figurative way. All the implications of birth, all the stages of birth, are relevant even though this is not a literal birth that Jesus is referring to. When a person is literally born, they are attached to a family and they receive the family name. Jesus says to Nicodemus, when you are born figuratively, when you are born from God, you'll become part of a family. It is God's family. You'll take on a family name. It is God's family name. Now, you might be surprised to know that God in heaven has a family and that this family bear his name, but it is true. Again, let us go to the Bible to let it interpret itself. In Ephesians 3, verse 14 to 15, the Apostle Paul was humbled that he had been called to be the part of, a part of this family and to bear God's name. He writes that this family consists of immortal angels in heaven and believers on earth. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Jesus was saying to Nicodemus, unless you are born from above, born from God, you will not see the kingdom of God. You will not be part of the family of God. Well, in verse 4, Nicodemus asks, do I have to be born from my mother again to see the kingdom of God? Is that what being born again from above means? Now we need to notice what Nicodemus says here because this is the reason for his misunderstanding of the Bible. He looked at things from a natural perspective. He thought that because he was born a Jew that he would receive the benefits promised to faithful Jews and he was mistaken. Jesus' answer to his reply of being born naturally is clearly no. There is only one way to see the kingdom of God and to enter it and in verse 5 Jesus explains that the way is by being involved in two different kinds of births verily verily I say unto thee except a man be born of water and of the spirit he cannot enter into the kingdom of God now before we look at what Jesus says 
Notice this important statement in verse 5 that was back in verse 3. Jesus begins both verses with verily, verily. The Greek is more correctly, truly, truly. Jesus spoke that word verily a number of times during his ministry. And in the Gospel of John, it is the only place where the word is repeated for emphasis. Verily, verily. In this Gospel, the Apostle John identifies the Bible truths of Jesus' teachings. In this passage, we're looking at is in this passage that we're looking at is the first of these Bible truths that Jesus speaks in this gospel. And that's why it is imperative that we understand what Jesus is saying. In verse 5, we notice that Jesus refers to two different types of figurative births. He refers to a birth of water, and he refers to a birth of spirit. None of those births are what we would identify as a natural birth. So, what are these births? Let's consider the first of them, born of water. What type of birth is Jesus referring to when he tells Nicodemus that he has to be born of water? Well, the answer to that is immersion in water on the basis of understanding the gospel. Jesus is telling Nicodemus that he needs to be baptised having believed the truth. In the New Testament, the ritual of baptism is described as a new beginning. So let me just quickly string a number of Bible references together to show this, and I'm going to put them on the screen for you to save time. In Romans 6, verse 4, the Apostle Paul tells us that baptism, immersion in water, is the beginning to a new way of life. It is like a new birth. In Colossians 3, verse 1 and 4, Jesus said, Having been baptised, seek those things that are from above, so that when Jesus returns, you might be saved. James writes in James 1 verse 18 that we are begotten by the word of God. And the Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 1 verse 16 and 23, Be ye holy, live a separate way of life, begotten by the incorruptible seed of the word of God. Baptism is like a natural birth. It has two stages to it. God's word, the Bible, is like a seed that springs up in us, like conception and we read the Bible. We learn the gospel and understand it and then that gospel causes us to want to respond to it. That response begins with a figurative birth, baptism, and continues as our lives take on a new focus, a focus where God is our father and we are part of his family on earth. Well, putting all that together, what Jesus was saying to Nicodemus was, if you want to see the kingdom, then you have to learn what the gospel is about. You might be of Jewish descent. You might be a master in Israel. You might be able to teach all the Old Testament scriptures. What you lack is an understanding of the key to the truth or gospel. Your understanding is faulty because you have followed what the leaders of the Jews preach, and their preaching is in error because it is founded on salvation by natural means. Nicodemus was following a class of people who had their own ideas of what the Bible taught. Just glance back to verse 2 of this chapter. Nicodemus came to Jesus with, Rabbi, we know, we, the masters, the teachers, we know. And notice in verse 3 and verse 5 that Jesus bypasses the we, the religious leaders as a whole, 
and he focuses on Nicodemus as an individual. Verily, verily, I say unto thee. Nicodemus, if you want to see and enter the kingdom of God, you need to give away what so-called masters and teachers say about the Bible, and you, ne you need to find the truth of the scriptures. You need to find the key to the gospel, and you need to understand it. Having understood it, you need to be immersed in water and begin a new way of life. You need to be born from above, born of God. That begins with a birth of water and a walk in a newness of life. And really, friends, that advice to Nicodemus is relevant for us. We need to stop following religious leaders whose understanding of the Bible is not true because they don't compare the scriptures with the scriptures. We need to open the Bible for ourselves and carefully examine its message. We need to understand the gospel and respond in baptism, which is the way we show God that we are ready to make a real and lasting commitment to him and to Jesus Christ. And having been baptised, we need to show our commitment to God by walking on a different path with a new focus in our lives. What does that mean? Well, let me spend a moment here to explain how the Bible describes this walk in a new way of life. On the screen is a reference from Ephesians 2 verse 12 that describes the situation that exists for people who have not been baptised. Let me read it to you in the positive. For those that are born of water, here are the benefits. Christ is with us. We are related to the Commonwealth of Israel. We are joined to the covenants of promise. We have a hope. And God is with us. Christ is with us. That means Christ's moral purity becomes the bar that we aim for. We become related to the hope of Israel. And that means we have hope of resurrection from the dead. We become heirs of the promises given to the fathers of Israel. That means the promises about the kingdom of God on earth become ours by inheritance. And God is with us, which means we can pray to God, seeking forgiveness for our failings and be heard. Having been called to share in these benefits will result in the focus of our life shifting from self-seeking to God-sharing. And that's what being born of water means. Jesus was telling Nicodemus he had to change the course of his life. Nicodemus thought he was a master of religion, but the God of the Bible was not his God. He thought he was going to automatically inherit the promises God made to Israel, but he was not. He needed to make a drastic change in his commitment to the true God of the Bible and not to the God that the Jewish leaders worshipped. So the first thing Nicodemus had to do was to be born of water, an essential step, because in the process of believing, we see the kingdom of God that is described in the Bible. It becomes a real thing, something to reach for, something to strive to enter into. But being born of water is only the first step. Baptism only gives us the hope of entering into the kingdom of God. To get to the kingdom, we need to we need, as Jesus adds in verse 5, to be born of the Spirit. So what does Jesus mean here? 
Well, let me tell you first that what some, what some say this means. Some teach that being born of the Spirit means receiving the Holy Spirit gifts. That Jesus here is talking about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit gifts when a person is baptised. And without the Holy Spirit power in you, then you won't be in the kingdom. Well, let me just say up front that Jesus isn't referring to the Holy Spirit gifts in this passage at all. Jesus does not use the words holy or gifts to Nicodemus, only the word spirit. So to suggest that this reference is about the Holy Spirit gifts is to not read the Bible carefully. It is to add to the Bible what is not there. Jesus did speak about Holy Spirit gifts to his disciples, but not till we get to John chapter, not, chapter 14. It was only towards the end of his ministry that he promised to give this power to them. Jesus did not have the Holy Spirit gifts in mind here at all in this discussion with Nicodemus. In fact, the Bible is clear about the Spirit gifts. They were not received when a person was baptised, as many of the churches say happens today. The scripture is clear. The Holy Spirit gifts were only received by the laying on of the apostles' hands, as the reference on the screen indicates. Jesus is not talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit to Nicodemus. Jesus is using the word spirit to mean the birth of immortality. Jesus uses the word spirit in the context of meaning the nature of God, eternal life. Again, let me give you a number of references from the Bible that will help prove that. The first is 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45, where we are told that after his resurrection, Jesus was no longer under the condemned nature inherited from Adam. He was now a quickening spirit. Jesus was no longer a mortal man. He was now an immortal being with the nature of God. He had been born of spirit to a new experience of life by the power of God. He was immortal. That change in nature in Christ is the hope that we look forward to when we understand the gospel and we respond and are baptised. In 2 Peter 1 verse 4 we read that the gospel is expressed in important promises that God makes to us. Baptism is the action that puts us in a position that we might receive the promises that relate to divine nature. If we believe, are baptised and live faithfully to God, we also will receive eternal life. In Philippians 3 verse 20 to 21, the Apostle Paul says that having been baptised, we are waiting for Jesus to return to the earth from heaven to set up God's kingdom at which time Jesus will give all who have been baptised and remain faithful to God the same quickening spirit that he possesses now. He will change our vile, mortal body and fashion it like his glorious, immortal body, a body energised by the divine nature. So Nicodemus, if you haven't learnt the gospel message, and if you haven't been baptised, you won't ever have hope of being born of the Spirit and receiving eternal life. And if you don't receive eternal life, you will not be a part of the kingdom of God. In the terms of a natural birth, Nicodemus, you need to be conceived by the word of God so that you might be born of the Spirit and gain the kingdom. In verse 6, Jesus warned Nicodemus, and that warning is applicable to us. If we are born of the flesh, if our life is just a natural birth, we will end up receiving 
what the flesh has inherited, death. But if we decide to choose the birth of water that will end with the birth of the Spirit, then we will receive eternal life and enter into the kingdom of God on earth. He that is born of the flesh, a natural birth, will die in the course of events. That death is final. There is no going to heaven for good souls. There is no going to hell for bad souls. And Jesus says this to Nicodemus in verse 13. And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. Heaven is not the reward of the faithful. The faithful look forward to the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth. He that is born of water, lives faithfully to God, will be born of spirit, made like Jesus is now, when Jesus returns to earth and begins the work of establishing God's kingdom. When Jesus comes to first save those who are related to him, and are faithful. So standing back and looking at this passage, Nicodemus came to Jesus on behalf of the Jewish religious leaders who did not understand or believe the truth of who Jesus was, nor for that matter who God was. He came to Jesus with the belief that his natural birth of a Jewish mother meant that he would automatically be saved and be in the kingdom of God. But Jesus told him his understanding was flawed. Jesus explained to him the hope of the Bible and what he needed to do to be saved. In verse 11, Jesus speaks to Nicodemus again, using that expression we saw in verse 3 and verse 5, Verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto thee. Truly, truly, I say unto thee, we speak that we do know and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. Jesus' appeal in this verse is for Nicodemus to go back to the Bible and consider what Jesus had said to him. Jesus had spoken the Bible to the Jewish leaders and they would not believe or accept him. Jesus, as we have seen tonight, quoted the Bible as a witness to Nicodemus and now he is challenging Nicodemus to read the relevant passages and believe who Jesus was, the Son of God. Well, what did Nicodemus do with that clear exposition of the scriptures? Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say unto thee. This message was for Nicodemus. What did he do with it? Well, come with me to John chapter 19. Here is what Nicodemus did when that puzzling passage, except a man be born again, was made clear to him. Jesus was not speaking of a natural birth. Jesus was not speaking about spirit gifts. Jesus was showing Nicodemus and us how to become a part of God's family now and in the future. He was showing Nicodemus and us that we need to read the scriptures properly, find the key to the gospel, believe it and be baptised. He was showing Nicodemus and us that we need to walk in a newness of life, obeying God's laws and living with the vision of the future of the kingdom of God. So what did Nicodemus do with that message? Well, in verse 39 we read, And there also there came also to the tomb of Jesus Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night, and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes about an hundred pound weight. 
Then took they the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes with the spices, as the as manner of Jews is to bury. So Nicodemus abandoned the Jewish masters of the law, the teachers of a false religion, and he courageously stepped out publicly to show his allegiance to God and to Jesus Christ. He believed the witness of Jesus and he stepped away from the masters of Israel to become a follower of Jesus Christ. Having solved the puzzle of this passage, Nicodemus responded. He was born again from above and became a member of God's family. He was baptized of water and lived faithfully to God with the hope that at the return of Jesus Christ, he will be resurrected and found faithful. And if faithful to be born of the spirit and inherit the divine nature that his Lord now possesses. Nicodemus responded to Jesus' words and he made it clear who he believed in. Will we have the courage to do the same? The content of this lecture will disturb some people. However, you are at liberty to leave at any time. If you're watching this later, of course, you can just simply turn it off. The lecture will be based on the universally accepted King James translation of the Bible. I'll be analyzing this passage of scripture that our chairman read for us this evening. And from the scriptures, we will be um, looking at uh, understanding this puzzling passage. Uh, I will be advancing I will be advancing the evidence that we all have before us to help us arrive at a conclusion of the definition of this man of sin. Ultimately, the Lord is the judge of all mankind, so what I present will stand so much as it is based on the word of God and on God's authority. Reference to people and organisations are only as directed by scripture. God is their judge, not man. However, our aim is to seek to know what the scripture teaches us about the man of sin and why. So the passage that we have before us this evening, the first 12 verses of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, is going to be our focus because, as our chairman said, it contains our expression that we are going to consider the man of sin, that man of sin, as he's referred to in verse 3. And what we want to do is just analyse this section of scripture just by some summary slides. First of all, if we were to analyse this section, and you can see highlighted on the left in the text, um, all of the references that describe the man of sin. He's a man of sin, son of perdition, and the word perdition means spiritual ruin. Opposes God, exalts himself above God, sits in the temple of God, showing himself God on earth. It's called the mystery of iniquity, and the word iniquity means lawless or lawlessness. He's called that wicked, working uh, the working of Satan. The word Satan means an adversary or an enemy, that is, of God. Miracle signs and lying wonders will accompany him. Deceivableness of unrighteousness is how his actions are described. Receive not the love of the truth, and as a result of that, deluded by God, and finally condemned by God. If we look at the expressions that relate to um, the prophecy, which this is, this is a prophecy uh, that the Apostle Paul is outlining to the believers in uh, Thessalonica, he describes a falling away, and the Strong's definition of the expression falling away comes from the Greek word apostasia, 
and Strong's definition uh, of that word is a defection from truth, that is properly the state, so the state of apostasy, uh, uh, that is a defection from the truth, a falling away and a forsaking. So Paul's prophecy is of an apostate movement that would form out of the true community of believers who lived in the days of the apostles. And all of those references outline the fact that this mystery of iniquity was at work when Paul wrote this letter and describes the way in which it will be a deceiving system that will uh, defect away from the truth, receiving not the love of the truth, which leads to salvation, deluded by God as a result of that, and of course condemned by God uh, because they have apostated from the truth. The prophecy continues uh, to outline the specific man of sin and there are references to a singular person. This apostate movement will be headed up by one man who will have successes that maintained his role until the second coming of Christ. And that's important as we analyse this text and see what are we uh, given to understand concerning this man of sin. We have three words that I've underlined there. The word withholdeth, letteth and let which are all translations of the Greek word katecho, which actually means uh, withhold is actually a better translation. However, the old English word let or letteth actually did mean to hinder or hold back. And so you'll see the definitions that Strong's gives us uh, about uh, to have, uh, to hold fast, to keep in memory, to let, to possess, to retain, to seize on, to stay, to take, to withhold. So you see uh, a reference now as this prophecy unfolds, to the revealing of this mysterious apostate movement under the headship of a single religious leader would come after a known hindrance which existed in the first century was removed. It was a known hindrance because it was in existence. The Apostle Paul said, you know what withholdeth that this man of sin might be revealed in his time. And then when the hindrance was removed, this man of sin would be revealed to all openly. The prophecy comes to a conclusion with references that we've highlighted as what the outcome will be of this man of sin. Finally, the Lord Jesus Christ will consume and destroy this man and condemn him and all his followers at his second coming. And in fact, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is a very uh, important theme of Paul's letters, both the first and the second letters to the uh, Thessalonian Ecclesia. The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the day of Christ, that day. And when the Lord comes, he will consume uh, the man of sin with the spirit of his mouth and destroy him with the brightness of his coming. So that's the prophecy. So if we just summarise this uh, text that we have just considered, what have we found? We found that Christ and the apostles founded, were founded on the original true gospel. We also saw by the prophecy of the Apostle Paul that there would be the development of an apostate Christian movement in its mystery phase when Paul wrote this letter. There was a force that existed at the time of the apostles that restrained the apostate Christian movement being in itself an anti-Christian power. But there would come a time when that restraining force was going to be taken away. That was a restraining force that was known, of course, to the uh, ecclesia that Paul was writing to, the group of believers. And following the removal of the restraining force, the apostate Christian movement was openly revealed and so was its newly appointed, so was its newly appointed religious head, who under a succession of men would remain in a position of headship over the apostate religious movement until the second coming of Christ. Now our concluding summary is really just a superficial consideration of the subject of those twelve verses. 
That's what we've been told. We've just simply sectioned all of the uh, aspects of this prophecy so that we can come to a, 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 an overview, if you like, of those first 12 verses. Now, if you just cast your, your eyes back to chapter 1 of this second letter to the believers in Thessalonica, they were aware that judgment was coming on uh, those that um, afflicted and persecuted the believers. Uh, and the righteous judgment of God is referred to in verse 6 uh, of chapter 1. It's a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. And to those who are troubled, he's referring to the believers who are persecuted at this time, rest with us. Because the Lord Jesus Christ will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on two classes of people. Them that know not God, which in the days of the, uh, the ecclesia or the community of believers in Thessalonica or the first century was the pagan Roman Empire, which was fiercely uh, anti-Christian. However, also upon those that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a religious system that would be a, an apostate system. Uh, and of course, that included in the first century, uh, the, uh, the uh, believers, as well as the headship of the Jewish uh, religious system. And later, of course, that would develop into um, a fully uh, fledged, manifested apostate system, which was secretly working behind the scenes and defecting away from the truth. And our Lord Jesus Christ will punish both classes with everlasting destruction from his presence, verse 9, and from the glory of his power when he will come to be glorified in his saints. So the subject of coming judgment upon uh, pagan Rome, which uh, persecuted the Christians, but also an apostate religious system is described there in the first chapter. And of course, uh, the Apostle Paul is reminding the believers uh, that justice would one day come. Now, if we look at this summary, just before we move to the next slide, historically speaking, if we know our history from the days of the apostles uh, and from this time and forward, it is actually very simple to actually understand historically who the man of sin is and uh, the manifestation of the man of sin when the withholding power was taken away. Now, in order to tell you the history, I just want to take you through what was happening in the mystery of iniquity that was working at this time behind the scenes before it was fully manifested uh, at the removal of the withholding power. And what was happening within uh, the believers uh, uh, at that time was a debate between uh, two opposing parties, one that held to um, a belief that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and the other that held to a belief that Jesus Christ was God the Son. And uh, these two men, uh, Arius uh, and Athanasius, battled it out in this debate. And that history continued, of course, until uh, the majority view was adopted into Christianity. So this debate is actually historically important because it's what the Apostle Paul said was happening uh, with this apostasy away from the truth. Now, I've just got a couple of quotes uh, one from the Encyclopedia Britannica and one from um, Wikipedia that just gives us a history lesson on what actually the theology was of the times. And the, uh, you'll see the meaning of, uh, and the significance of this as we come uh, uh, down the history uh, from this time. So regarding the doctrine of the Trinity, we have this, uh, this reference about the history of the development of this dogma. Neither the word Trinity nor the explicit doctrine appears in the New Testament, nor did Jesus and his followers intend to contradict the Shema or the religious prayers in the Hebrew scriptures, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, which, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ said 
was the first and greatest commander. The doctrine developed gradually over several centuries and through many controversies, as I said, headed up by Arius and Athanasius. Initially, both the requirements of monotheism, that is that there is only one God, inherited from the Hebrew scriptures, and the implications of the need to interpret biblical teaching to Greco-Roman religions, and so it goes on. Now, that is really interesting. It's interesting because on one hand, we had a position clearly established in the scriptures, Old and New Testaments, and then gradually over centuries and controversies, there was seen a need to interpret what the Bible said with what were ideas in the theology of the Greco-Roman religions, which were pagan. And I'm going to make a statement that might alarm you, but most of the current doctrines held by Christianity today owe their origins to pagan concepts. And they go right through from the immortality of the soul to the influence of the gods, good gods and bad gods, gods over humanity, the afterlife, hell and, and hell torment. All of those things, including the Trinity, came from pagan concepts which were woven into the original uh, belief of Christ and the apostles. Here's um, uh, Wikipedia. Uh, and again, the developed doctrine of the Trinity is not explicit in the books that constitute the New Testament. It was first formulated as early Christians attempted to understand the relationship between Jesus and God in their scriptural documents and prior traditions. So you can see what the Apostle Paul was saying about an apostasy away from the truth was actually at work centered around a debate, a controversy that lasted for centuries, which eventually uh, developed the theory of the Trinity, which then became adopted into mainstream Christianity. In the fourth century, Arianism, as traditionally understood, taught that the Father existed prior to the Son, who was not by nature God, but rather a changeable creature who was granted the dignity of becoming Son of God. So that was Arius's position, which was the position of Old and New Testaments, the position of Jesus Christ, and the position of the Apostles. However, when we get to 325 in the First Council of Nicaea, the Nicaean Creed was adopted because that was the most popular view uh, that uh, was the outcome of this controversy, that Christ was God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father and the Holy Ghost as the one by which was incarnate of the Virgin Mary. Now that is interesting because we have the development of the uh, apostate uh, uh, religious system that really uh, concurrently developed out of this debate and controversy that existed uh, from the days of the Apostle Paul's writing right through, as we said, until the fourth century. So we can see just by looking at history what the Apostle Paul was talking about and what would be the key doctrine that identified an apostate system that would be manifest. However, it was held at bay because pagan Rome was anti-Christian. However, there was a man that solved that problem, as we'll see shortly. If you're interested, I've got that book up there uh, by Richard E. Rubenstein. He does an amazing job of actually telling the story of this history of the debates between Arius and Athanasius and how Constantine, who was not a Christian at the time, who was purely politically motivated to find something that would unify the empire under his control, and he, of course, was the one credited as Christianizing the Holy Roman Empire. He destroyed the pagan Roman Empire's power, and he took that power upon the premise of Christianity in the name of Christ, and he brought the doctrine of the Trinity, which was the most popular view, 
uh, amongst all of those um, debaters of theology, and uh, he took that as political expediency and the majority view to establish a religious system. And he, of course, established the Christian Roman Empire or the Holy Roman Empire, which replaced the pagan Roman Empire. This, if you are looking for an interesting read about the actual history, that book I would definitely thoroughly recommend. Of course, one of the key differences between um, uh, uh, the Protestant movement, really, and I'm now jumping ahead to, um, uh, uh, to later times, uh, the 17th century, when there was the times of the Reformation, and that's when our uh, King James Bible was written, the time of um, study of the Scriptures and an attempt to take the Scriptures away from the uh, Catholic Church and, um, uh, and uh, make it possible for it to be translated into English so that it could actually be distributed uh, amongst communities, which was resisted by the Catholic Church. And during the time of Reformation, there was um, a term which described really the, the, the contrast between the position of Protestantism and the position of Orthodox Christianity. And that was called sola scriptura, which means by scripture alone. Protestants asserted that the scriptures are the only basis upon which we can understand the truth. And of course, as you can see, that was considered heresy by the Catholic Church because they took to themselves writings subsequent to the scriptures, which they believed were inspired uh, uh, revelations revealed to church fathers, which took precedence over the scriptures. And the Orthodox churches also considered that to be contrary to the mind of the church. So both Orthodox and Catholic uh, Christianity rejects that the scriptures alone are our authority. And that might explain why there was that conflict initially between Protestantism and Orthodox Christianity, Catholic and Orthodox Christianity. However, sadly, as we have come to see, the Protestant movement has actually fallen back under the, uh, the uh, theology of the Orthodox Catholic uh, beliefs. So there's very little difference today. And of course, that is challenged by many scriptures. This one uh, is in Isaiah 8 and verse 20. And here's the words of God. So I make no apologies for emphasizing that this is what God is on record for stating. How can we determine who speaks on his behalf and who doesn't? Well, through the prophet Isaiah, God says to the law and to the testimony, that is the law of God and the testimony or the writings of God, if anyone does not speak according to this word, they are not divinely enlightened. And that challenges the Orthodox and the Catholic Church who claim that they can have subsequent revelations that modify our understanding of the scriptures that take precedence over the scriptures and override what has been previously revealed. Well, that's not what God is on record as stating. And God would not have made that statement if he had anticipated that he would reveal things different to what he revealed in the Old and New Testaments, which are his inspired word. Here's Paul's words to his young son in the faith, Timothy. And we've got to remember, when Jesus and the apostles preached, they didn't have the New Testament scriptures. Their scriptures that they preached the gospel from was the Old Testament scriptures. And Paul says concerning them, you from a child, Timothy, has known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And so sola scriptura is the only place that we can stay if we want to be certain of the truth. However, if you don't accept that and you accept that any organisation claiming to be speaking on God's behalf or not 
can give you information that is contrary to what's written in the scriptures, we have no basis of a discussion. We will never agree because we have a different basis. We have a different uh, basis upon which we can discuss things. And so at that point, we either agree that the scriptures are the truth and that anything contrary to the scriptures are not of God or we don't because if we don't agree on that, we really can't proceed. So the man who was instrumental in Christianizing the pagan Roman Empire was a man called Constantine. And of course, he presided over the controversy. He uh, established the Trinity because it was the majority view as a basis upon which he could unite uh, an empire that he had conquered. And there's a statue of him uh, in York, in Britain, very close to the place where he was um, made emperor of the uh, Holy Roman Empire. And of course, it was uh, Constantine who uh, headed up and appointed the uh, papal system uh, and uh, places of worship uh, so that Christianity became the state religion of the Holy Roman Empire. It's an interesting story. However, history is important because history defines for us the events of the Apostle Paul gave by prophecy in this section that we have read tonight. Now, I know what you're going to be thinking because I, um, when I came to look at this subject, anticipated what might, uh, might be a challenge to uh, some people uh, just to conceive uh, a, a thought as, as, uh, as challenging as this, that an apostate system of religion, which we can historically identify as the Holy Roman Empire under the religious headship of the popes, established by Constantine, who took away that hindering or withholding power and allowed the system of apostasy to emerge and the man of sin as its head, we might find this really challenging to think that this could actually be a reference to the Catholic, uh, the Catholic Orthodox religion and the Pope as its head. And so I pose this question. Is it actually conceivable that a religion so universally accepted and established with so much apparent divine endorsement can actually be this archer, enemy of God and Jesus Christ? And it's an important question to ask. And I think we do well to actually look at a different section of history. And this is the history that relates to our Lord Jesus Christ's experience at the hand of his people. Because there was an interesting pretext to the events that Jesus uh, and the Apostle Paul and the Apostles prophesied was yet to come. That would come prior to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is actually historical as far as uh, the time of Paul's letter is concerned. This happened in the past. However, it is important history. What you see there is a, is a, a model or a recreation of Herod's temple which stood in the city of Jerusalem. It was the center of universal worship. It was the house of prayer for all nations for so it was ordained of God. It stood in Jerusalem where God had said, I will put my name there it had a 2,000 year heritage originating in Abraham and Moses. Jesus Christ said that its administration sat in Moses' seat, so they had Moses' authority. God ordained its religion, its laws, its theology, its worship, its customs and practices. To it was given the keys of the kingdom, and access into divine favor and a divine future could come by no other way than the hope of Israel. Anyone who wanted to be part of God's future at this time needed to become a proselyte, follower of the law of Moses, and that's how they would be encompassed in the covenants of promise that God made to Abraham and the fathers. In the days of the Lord Jesus Christ, the congregation of God 
which of course went beyond the borders of Israel and we have records of many people coming from all over the then known world to worship at Jerusalem, it was presided over by a universal head. He was in the position of high priest and his name was Caiaphas. And the Lord Jesus Christ used an expression of Caiaphas in three passages in John's Gospel, he called him the prince of this world. The word prince is the Greek word archon. And the word archon means the person of highest rank or power. The word prince is not really a good translation because it implies royalty. The Greek word does not imply royalty, but just simply the person in the highest position. And religiously speaking, that position was held at the time of the Lord Jesus Christ's first advent by Caiaphas. The word ark, the beginning of the word archon, is the word we use like archangel or um, 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 uh, archbishop or um, the, um, the, uh, the word actually high priest is a combination of the word ark. It's adhirefs. So even the word high priest has the word ark in it or arch. So first in rank or power. And what did the Lord Jesus Christ say about the prince of this world? Well, he says, the judgment of this world is coming, and now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And he's, of course, referencing the judgment that will come upon the Jewish religious order under the headship of Caiaphas in AD 70. Hereafter, I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world cometh, and he's got nothing in me. And in John 16, verse 11, of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. Now, this prince, this archbishop, uh, this high priest, Archidefs, held a conference with the religious leaders of Jewry, and he determined that for political expediency, the Lord Jesus Christ needed to be executed so that they could retain their place and their nation. Otherwise, they feared Roman reprisal. And the rest is history. Of course, those of you who know your history know that it appeared as though the high priest and the religious leaders of Jewry had the upper hand when they crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. But as Jesus rightly said, in AD 70, he brought judgment upon the prince of the world and upon his organisation. So Paul's prophecy concerning a future apostasy and a future enemy of God and Jesus Christ is not so surprising. And what did the Lord Jesus Christ say about these men, and in particular, the one in the highest rank or power among them, you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. They receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. You seek to kill me and I've told you the truth. You are of your father the devil, the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he, just, he speaks of his own for he is a liar and the father of it. And that's why he raised against him their ire and their anger and their opposition. Because he called them out for their hypocrisy, their blasphemy, their forsaking of the truth, and their defecting away from God. And they became opposed to the Lord Jesus Christ and opposed to God. And history testifies to that. When Jesus stood before Pilate, he said, To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. And everyone that is of the truth hears my voice. And how true are those words? The prince of this world, the high priest, and religious jury did not care about the truth. They cared about political expediency and power. And so this prophecy that the Apostle Paul gave 
might not surprise us when we know the dramatic way in which the Lord's experience at his first advent is almost like a little microcosm of the experience at his second advent. The Lord Jesus Christ said to his followers, his apostles, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. They will put you out of the synagogues. The time comes that whosoever kills you will think that he doeth God's service. This is, this is a, re a religion in the name of God that is a persecuting system. It was guilty of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and it was guilty of the blood of the apostles. And the Lord Jesus Christ said to those very men that murdered him and would later murder his apostles that it's the same spirit that existed in apostate Jewry in the past who killed the prophets. Right back to righteous Abel and Cain, who was the first example of the man of sin. That's because they have not known the Father, nor have they known me. Strong words. But they are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ against the same spirit that is manifested in the Apostle Paul's prophecy concerning the man of sin, which will be seen uh, prior to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in their opposition, their formal opposition to the return of Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ in the Olivet Prophecy prophesied about false Christs and false prophets. He said that they would be accompanied with signs and wonders. And just like Paul says in uh, Thessalonians, with all deceivableness of unrighteousness, they would deceive the very elect. And their greatest danger was not that they were a persecuting system, putting Jesus and his apostles to death. Their greatest crime was deceiving people into believing a lie and being condemned by God. Jesus said, don't fear the person that can kill your body and after that there's nothing that he can do. Because that's what this apostate system has done in the past and did in the development of the apostate system that continued after the days of Constantine. Fear people that can leave you in the grave, both body and soul. And they are the people that are guilty of deception in order to delude people in believing the, uh, the lie of their false teaching that brings upon them eternal condemnation. That's worse than physical persecution. The Apostle John spoke about antichrists. Again, following on from the prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ, antichrists were going to come. The Apostle John says, look, even now they are, uh, they, are, uh, they are present and they are active within the community of the believers. They went out from us because they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us, but they went out they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. That manifestation is the same manifestation the Apostle Paul speaks of here. After the hindering force of pagan Rome would be put aside by Constantine, this apostate system would be manifested in its fullness and identified. And this apostate system was identified by one particular key doctrine. And John warned people of this doctrine. He said, every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus is come in the flesh is not of God. It's the spirit of Antichrist that is against Christ. Whereof ye have heard that it should come, even now already it is in the world. So John and Paul understood the prophecies concerning Antichrist that the Lord Jesus Christ gave in the Olivet Prophecy. Many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an Antichrist. Whosoever transgresseth, and doesn't abide in the doctrine of Christ, has not God. And he that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, well, he hath both the Father and Son. So if there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, don't receive him into your house. 
Neither bid him God speed, because he that biddeth him God speed is a partaker of his evil deeds. That's what the Apostle John said in agreeing with the Apostle Paul and in agreeing with the Lord Jesus Christ concerning what would identify Antichrist. And that expression, Jesus Christ is come in the flesh, might seem a little bit uh, vague, but it needs a scriptural definition in order for us to understand what was that defective uh, theory that was challenging the truth in the days of the Apostle Paul and the Apostle John. How could they, they identify that that was where the apostasy was heading? Well, because that's where the apostasy started. They did not accept that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. And if we want to scripturally define that, we won't go there, but in Luke 1, verse 31 to 35, we have a scriptural definition of what it meant that Christ came in the flesh. He came into the world by means of a normal fleshly birth, conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary, thus begotten by God, and became the Son of God. And you can go and check that up, Luke 1, verse 31 to 35. They are the precise words of the angel Gabriel to Mary. And what we see as this mystery of iniquity was working and the centuries of controversy amongst the Arians and the Athanasians, the doctrine of the Trinity refused to accept the biblical definition of Jesus coming in the flesh. They advanced that Jesus was not human as we are, that he was divine. He was God the Son, part of a triune Godhead, co-eternal, co-equal, consubstantial with the Father, whose spirit was incarnated into the womb of Mary and took on human form. And all of that is completely unscriptural. And that's how we can identify that the apostate system would have as its foundation doctrine, a doctrine that eventually was fully fledged in the Trinity, but commenced with people having pagan concepts about gods and demigods and how gods came into human existence and procreated amongst humans. All pagan concepts. And they were used to define the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so for the believers, they could see that that was the mystery of iniquity that was working and they needed to be aware of the deceivableness of unrighteousness because people refused to accept the love of the truth that they might be saved. And if we follow the storyline of the Bible, we will see that this story started right back in the Garden of Eden with the word of God given as a law to Adam and Eve and the lie of a serpent. That's where this story that we are reading now in its latter-day manifestation, that's where it all started. A lie that represented a false position on God and his word, and at the end, that caused sin and that caused death. And God declared enmity between truth and the lie. And they stood as the bastions of two groups of people, two communities of people. One, the true worshippers of God and the other, the false worshippers of God, based on whether they believe the truth or a lie. So if you were to say to me, how important is it that we understand the truth concerning the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, that's how important it is. It's a matter of whether we are worshipping God in truth or whether worshipping God as, uh, as a liars in false worship. There's what's called obedience, righteousness, and there's disobedience and sin. And there's enmity and conflict between these two. One ends in eternal life, the other ends in death. The kingdom of God versus the kingdom of man. All of these are synonyms of a battle that commenced with the truth and a lie. 
And we can follow that theme right through the scriptures and see where this, uh, this uh, apostate system went wrong in departing away from the truth. Now I'd like you to, well actually we haven't got time. I'm just going to take you very briefly back to the origin of the prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Olivet Prophecy, Paul's, uh, Paul's prophecy here in Thessalonians, and also the Apostle John's prophecy concerning uh, the opposing system that would be developed and would, uh, would manifest itself uh, as the empire transitioned from pagan to Christian. Now, I'm going to do this briefly, so um, I apologise for the brevity, but I just want you to see the connections between all of the uh, prophecies concerning this system and how they are all based on the prophecy that was given by God to a man called Daniel, and particularly we're going to take a few references from Daniel chapter 7. Now, Daniel is given a vision, and I apologise for the brevity, but just focus on some detail, and then I'll take you back and give you an overview of a vision. There was a creature, a beast. It was the fourth in a series of four. It had ten horns. And there was one particular horn that came up before whom three fell. And Daniel wanted to know the truth concerning this particular horn. It had eyes and a mouth. So it was... The, and I'll give you a brief lesson on Bible prophecy. The symbols that are used in the scriptures are used consistently. So we don't have to guess what they mean. The horn is used in the scriptures in Bible prophecy to denote a power. An animal that has horns, that's where its power is. And a horn that has eyes and a mouth is an individual person. Because a power can be a religious or a political power or a military power. However, in this case, it's one man. You put eyes and a mouth on a horn and you realise we're being told that we're focusing on one man. He spoke very great things. And we'll see in verse 25 that the great things he spoke were words against the Most High. His look was more stout than his fellows and I beheld the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them. So whoever this horn was, it was a persecuting system and it persecuted the saints of God and prevailed for a period of time. He spoke against God, he would wear out the saints of the Most High God and change times and laws. So he would invent a human form of religion that was contrary to the religion that was established by God. Now all of that happens until... So this horn does not have indefinite or eternal power, he's going to have influence in his deceptive apostate um, uh, uh, um, uh, position before God, and he's going to have, uh, uh, God is going to allow him to persecute the saints, but there's a time of judgment that's coming. Just like the Apostle Paul said, you can see how the Apostle Paul is using the language concerning the judgment of this system in verse 26. is when the Lord Jesus Christ, who is described as the Ancient of Days, comes in this prophecy of Daniel 7, Judgment was given to the saints of the Most High and the saints are going to possess the kingdom. And the judgment will sit and they will take away the dominion of this horn, this individual man who heads a power. And they, they will consume and destroy. And those two words are the exact same words that are used uh, in, Daniel's, uh, in Thessalonians in chapter 2 and verse 8. Consume and destroy. And the kingdom and dominion and greatness of the kingdom will be given to the people of the saints of the Most High whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Now this is the background to this um, horn that Daniel was given to see. In Daniel chapter 2 we have a timeline really of the kingdom of Babylon through various phases that it would go through until um, under a successive um, uh, changing uh, of empires we would get to Europe. 
However, when we look at the horns that are described of the beast, so each of the beasts on the right, which are referenced in Daniel 7 and 8, they correlate with the, um, the uh, image uh, empire. So the lion is used to, to align with the head of gold and Babylon. The bear is aligned with Medo-Persia. The leopard is, is aligned with Greece. And the beast that you see at the back, uh, a ferocious beast, is aligned with the legs of iron and finally the feet of iron and clay. Now, of that, um, of that uh, empire from Rome to Europe, the scriptures outline in all of the development of the horns or the powers of this Roman Empire until its present Catholic Europe presentation that it would go through a pagan phase, which was the phase that we know existed in the days that Paul wrote this letter, in the days of Jesus Christ and the Apostles. Then under Constantine, the Holy Roman Empire came into being as Constantine Christianised the Holy Roman Empire and established the popes and uh, the Catholic Church as the universal church. And in our modern day, in Catholic, uh, in Catholic Europe, a combination really of iron and clay, because we have a combination of uh, the, the Western uh, Catholic religion and the Eastern Orthodox religion that are going to be welded together, and they are called in the book of Revelation, the mystery Babylon the Great. And this system in Revelation, and we're not going to go to Revelation, um, but if you're interested in, in Revelation, the Lord Jesus Christ outlines... Um, the latter-day manifestation of really the Babylonian Empire through all of its phases. Babylon predated um, the, the, uh, the time when Nebuchadnezzar was king of Babylon, where Daniel was given this, this prophecy. Nimrod, if you're interested, back in Genesis chapter 10, right back in the very beginning, founded the kingdom of Babylon. And really, this is, this is a timeline of the Babylonian theology and the Babylonian religion that started with Nimrod and goes right through to the book of Revelation when Jesus calls the apostate system that he would meet on his second coming as mystery Babylon the Great. You see the word mystery that's used here also in Thessalonians, the mystery of iniquity. And it's Babylon because all of the pagan concepts of the Babylonian theology have woven their way into apostate Christianity. And the Lord Jesus Christ calls this future manifestation of the kingdom of men, which is opposed to the kingdom of God, as mystery Babylon the Great, mother of harlots and abominations of the earth, a woman drunken with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And that's what identifies this system. From Cain right through to the modern day, a system which opposes and persecutes and is guilty of the blood of the saints and the martyrs of Jesus. And the Lord Jesus Christ says concerning this system, with violence shall the great city of Babylon be thrown down and be found no more at all. Those references come from Revelation 17 and Revelation 18. And in the vision that Daniel saw in Daniel chapter 2, you can see that stone which smashed the image and ground it to powder and what stood in its place was the kingdom of God. That's really why the Lord says with violence, the great city Babylon will be thrown down and be found no more at all. <clears throat> now Daniel says that this horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them for a period of time. And you don't need me to stand here and tell you how historically we can identify what Jesus meant when he said, there will come a day when people that kill you will be thinking that they are doing God's service. He was not referring to pagan Rome. He was referring to apostate Christian Rome. And history records millions of people who were massacred and tortured 
and was subjected to inquisitions, which is living proof, even though the Catholic Church has apologised for its actions, it is living proof nonetheless that we can identify who the Lord Jesus Christ was referring to when he talked about a system that would persecute his brethren. And who Daniel referred to as this man who would wear out the saints of the Most High and who the Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation said was drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. I'm not going to read all of these out to you. And I looked at some of the uh, instruments that were created by the Catholic Church, instruments of torture. And I felt that it was inappropriate to actually present them in an audience of this nature because they would give you nightmares. Because that's what the Catholic Church was guilty of for centuries after centuries after centuries of time against people whose only crime was they wouldn't recant their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as they understood the truth and they wouldn't accept the Catholic Church. And here are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ to his apostles when he sent them forth to preach. Whosoever shall not receive you nor hear you, when ye depart thence, shake off the dust under your feet for a testimony against them. He didn't say torture them. He didn't say massacre them. He didn't say persecute them to recant and accept you. He said just shake, your, shake the dust of your feet for a testimony against them and I'll deal with them at judgment day. Because in that day, Sodom and Gomorrah will be more favorably treated than that, that city. You know, um, James and John wanted a, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ to force a person who was preaching in the name of Jesus. J James and John came to Jesus and said, you need to tell them that they can't do that. You need to stop them. James and John came to Jesus wanting to call fire down from heaven to burn the Samaritans because they resisted Jesus Christ. Peter took up a sword in the Garden of Gethsemane to defend his Lord with violence. And Jesus condemned them all and said, The Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save. That's the spirit of the Son of God. That's the instructions of the Lord Jesus Christ to his successors who would preach and be ambassadors on his, his behalf. And whilst the, the Catholic Church may be very sorry for what they have done, they have proven that they are this persecuting system. They are this opposing system. They are the perpetuation of the violence of Cain on Abel, of the apostate Jewish uh, believers upon the prophets, upon the apostate man of sin, the prince of this world, who murdered the Lord Jesus Christ and who continued after him to, to murder his apostles. It's the same system. It's the perpetuation of an apostate religious system. And the Apostle uh, Paul says that we can identify this system not only by its uh, treacherous past, their violent and bloody past, we can also identify them by these words, that this man who heads up this apostate system exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he is God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Here is um, Pope Pius IX opening the first Vatican Council and it's during this council that papal supremacy was proclaimed as a dogma, 29th of June, 1868. And I won't read all of the dogma out, but you'll see what's underlined. The Pope is the vicar or the personal representation of Jesus Christ on earth. And of course, because they believe in the Trinity, that's equal as, as saying God. 
the pastor of the entire Catholic Church, full supreme and universal power over the whole church, a power which he can always exercise unhindered. The Pope enjoys by divine institutions supreme, full, immediate and universal power in the care of souls. And that's why Pope Leo XIII said, since we hold, speaking of the Popes, upon this earth, the place of God Almighty as God, sitting in the temple of God, saying that he is God, and worshipped as God, And you know, when the Apostle John received the, uh, the amazing visions of the Apocalypse, he was so overawed by the majestic, glorious future that the Lord Jesus Christ, by his angels, sent to him to reveal to him in the dark walls of his dungeon visions of the future manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ and judgment upon systems of pagan and Christian apostasy. John falls down to worship the feet of the angel. An angel of God an immortal angel of God, and the angel says, John, don't do it. The Pope can accept worship. Here's an angel of God that says to John, worship God, not me. That's what the scripture says. And here is um, uh, um, um, the, uh, I'll just uh, find uh, where I have written in my notes. Uh, St. John Lateran, which is an Archbasilica Cathedral, a cathedral of St. John Lateran or the Lateran Basilica. It's a Catholic cathedral church of the Diocese of Rome in the city of Rome. It's a majestic building. It's the oldest and highest ranking of the four major papal basilicas. It was founded in 324, the year that Constantine became emperor. And it's the oldest public church in the city of Rome and the oldest basilica in the Western world. And the reason this church is important to us in understanding 2nd of Thessalonians chapter 2 is that it is in this church and in that very seat that you can see at the bottom center of that of that photo that's the seat of the Bishop of Rome where he speaks ex cathedra and the term ex cathedra in the Latin means from the chair and when he does this he is infallible and his word must be accepted whatever has been said in the past by anyone including God and the Apostle Paul says, by, by all of these means by which we can identify this system, one of them is, he will sit in the temple of God. And he will exalt himself above all that is called God or worship, sitting in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And in that church, on that seat, when he speaks, he is infallible. That's the chair from which he speaks ex cathedra. And the Apostle Paul says, here's how we can identify this system and here's how we can avoid the uh, deceit of this system and come under its influence. I know our time is slipping away. I've just got a couple of slides just to conclude. This one I found very interesting because this is the, uh, this is the catechism, catechism of the Catholic Church that's what CCC stands for. It's article or paragraph 675. I found this very interesting. This is the Catholic Church's view of Antichrist. Before Christ's second coming, the church must pass through a final trial that will shape the faith of many believers. The persecution that accompanies her pilgrimage on earth will unveil the mystery of iniquity in the form of a religious deception 
offering men an apparent solution to their problems at the price of apostasy from the truth. The supreme religious deception is that of the Antichrist, a pseudo-messianism by which man glorifies himself in place of God and of his Messiah come in the flesh. Now that is the recipe for a perfect storm. And we might understand why there will be conflict between the system of, that's described here, the mystery of iniquity, this apostate system and the man of sin and the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ because they have not understood Bible prophecy. Because the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says, when he comes, will consume the man of sin with the spirit of his mouth and destroy him with the brightness of his coming. As was revealed in the prophecy from which all of these eschatological prophecies in the New Testament are drawn, Daniel chapter 7, the judgment will sit and they will take away the power of this horn, this man who has power and dominion, and they will consume and destroy it unto the end. And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions will serve and obey him. But before judgment falls upon this system, the Lord Jesus Christ says there will be an appeal that has been the appeal of all time. It will be the final appeal. One last chance will be given to the followers of both Orthodox and Christian uh, um, uh, organisations, but also really to the Protestant churches who have largely fallen under the influence of the Mother Church. And this is the appeal that the Lord Jesus Christ says will again be uttered before final judgment calls and Babylon falls, never to be seen or heard of again, falls with violence. And I would like to finish with this appeal. And if anyone is watching this lecture, whether it's the Pope of Rome or whether it's any headship or member of the Catholic Church or the Orthodox Church, whether it's any headship or members of the Protestant churches, or whether it's any members of the Christadelphian community, some sadly of whom have embraced Orthodox Christianity and believe that we can fellowship with uh, apostate Christianity. This is the appeal of the Lord Jesus Christ, that Babylon and the kingdom of Babylon has always been apostate. It has always been anti-Christ and anti-God. From Cain right through to Nimrod, right through to the empires that we saw until its modern-day manifestation in East and Western Europe, and sadly, as we've said, the encompassing of the daughters of the harlot system, the Protestant churches, identified by a key departure from truth, the belief in a trinity. This appeal is from the Lord Jesus Christ. Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers, partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues, for her sins have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities.